Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I am Cameron, and with me, as always, co-host Michael. Hi! Sounds like uh, you're having a good time over there. Oh, I'm having a great time. It's me, Gambling Michael. Oh, just... no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's bad. Just hanging out here at the slots. Bing, bing, well, bing, 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 bing. I'm going to be honest with you. I've read this book about gambling, and it makes me think you probably shouldn't be doing it. And uh... you should stay as far as humanly possible away from the apparatus <laughs> that allows you to do it. Hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I've become a the world's lo- biggest pessimist about gambling that has ever been. Uh, and that's because for this month, we, uh, we've read a book, Michael, as we do every uh, month. I, before I get into that, I realize that sometimes at the beginning of these episodes, I don't say what the show is, and I probably should do that. <laughs> and once every three or four months, I realize I should say what the show is, and then I quit doing it. This is a show where we read through academic books and game studies. We talk about them. We put them in context with other books that we've read, bigger ideas outside of game studies, and hopefully make all of that accessible and useful for you if you're not part of academic game studies. So um, if you're interested in this book, in this uh, episode, we're talking about Addiction by Design, Machine Gambling in Las Vegas, which is by Natasha Dow Shul. Is it Shul or Shul? I do not know. There's an umlaut on that yep. U, which makes me think it's an ool. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, one of those two, we're, we need to make a call right now. Which one are we going to use? I think Shul. Shul, okay. Where well, I'm going to do that too. And uh, but so so this is a book uh, that is about not necessarily game studies in the sense of like Super Mario's um, or <laughs> Oblivion's, uh, the two games, of course, uh, that uh, all books have to mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's about the game, uh, the gaming industries. Uh, gambling, uh, particularly mm-hmm. centered on Vegas, but uh, in some other zones. So we'll be talking about this book and talking about it in relationship to a bunch of other stuff that we know about. And uh, if you don't have any experience in any of this, that shouldn't be a problem. We'll, mm-hmm. You'll be able to listen to a nice discussion, and then we'll get on down the road. Uh, of course, you can always go to twitter.com slash range touch to uh, shoot us whatever questions you have about uh, the thing here. And, uh, you know, if you get through the episode and you got some lingering questions about the book or something like that, we're always happy to, or maybe not happy to, we will always generally respond to those questions. Uh, and because uh, you can never always be happy about answering questions. And, of course, you can go to the Discord um, uh, for the show, and the information is down in the description below. Michael, had you read this book before? I had not, no. Okay, me neither. Mm-hmm. Um. The how did we come to this? Because uh, I, I don't think I was familiar with this book before we began the show. So a couple of years ago, I'm thinking about two years ago at this point, maybe maybe even three. Um, no, I think it was two because I think it was around the time we had just hit one of our uh, benchmarks or something like we had just hit, you know, like 30 episodes or something. And I remember I think we did uh, a big, long tweet thread where we went through mm-hmm. uh, each book that we had done so far and gave like a little description of it and so people would have a place to look at all of the episodes thus far and maybe like you know some new listeners might jump in and i think we fo- uh, followed that up with a call for any uh, recommendations for books that other people uh, might want us to cover and uh, ian bogost recommended that we do this book and i had it filed away in our little uh, google doc where we keep all of our to do books and I had been wanting to read it 
um, because it seemed sort of interesting. And it was. Extremely interesting. It was also Uh, the most depressing book we have ever read for this show. It is. It is annihilatingly depressing. Uh, Thank you, Ian. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that one. And, And actually, since that time, I think quite a few people have. I know in the Discord it's come up a couple times as well, but uh, mm-hmm. I think it got on the list um, through that initial thing. Uh, and uh, but yeah, it is a. I wrote somewhere in my notes that this is just a list of human misery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is the way that uh, machines produce bad conditions for people, and then everyone stands around and going, "I don't know how these people got so miserable. Mm-hmm. I don't know who did that." Who could be doing this to the people? Las Vegas is like uh, just a series of dudes in hot dog costumes standing in the C-suite saying, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. We're we're all trying to fix it. Like that really, <laughs> that the last several, or not several, the last couple chapters are really like, we're all trying to fix it. I don't know who's doing it. <laughs> we're all trying to find who did this. It's, it is uh, a truly strange experience to read. Um, but I would say probably uh, beautifully written as a rhetorical object, mm-hmm. because I think you, I think it would be very hard to read this book and get to the end and not be like, "There's some problems here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's not a book that at any point is prescriptive. I would say, or, or very, if it is, it's very rare. Right? Shul is never coming out at the beginning being like, "Hey, gambling's evil, and you shouldn't do it, and we should." imprison the people who who make you gamble like mm-hmm. that's never happening but you get to the end of it and i certainly was like i think this might be bad for all of us yeah i i think that there might be a a uh huge cultural problem here that uh since this book was published in 2012 has only become exacerbated and grown out of the confines uh that it ostensibly had <laughs> yeah and and crucially, right? I mean, there are a lot of moral frameworks to gambling, right? You know, oh, gambling's bad because it's immoral. It's you frittering away your wages, all that kind of stuff. Scholl, uh, I mean, we'll talk about this when we get into the book. But Scholl beautifully um, avoids all of this or, or at least contextualizes it by saying, well, look, this is just neoliberalism, right? In its current form, it's got a longer history to it than that. But like all of this like individualization and offloading of responsibility onto some other nebulous sport or you know uh, source that's just the neoliberal impetus within capitalism to atomize and individualize and pretend like there are no systemic issues mm-hmm. and also at every turn every person who works in the gambling industry is trying to maximize profits mm-hmm. so when those two things happen together right it's it's not you know I, I, the individual human being on the other end is like one part of the equation you know, that is uh, on the receiving end of the bludgeon that is billions of dollars invested in figuring out how to make them sit at a, at a machine and feed money into it constantly. Mm-hmm. It probably has very little to do with them or their psychology. Mm-hmm. Like, th- that's not not there, but it's probably not the biggest weight in the room. And again, Scholl's never really, you know, is making these things fairly analytically, you know, stepping pretty far back. I, did, did you look into uh, Natasha Dalshul's uh, kind of whole thing. Uh, well, what I have here is just uh, what she has on her website, which is that she is a cultural anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. Uh, her work explores the psychic life of technology with a focus on themes of addiction, anxiety, and affect modulation. 
Uh, she is currently working on a book uh, about uh, sensor technology and sort of self-documenting, self-tracking technology. It seems like uh, this project is going to get into things like, uh, oh, what's that uh, weird dietitian app, Noom, I think, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. technologies that allow you to kind of like uh, do this neoliberal calculus on yourself, right? Um, and she is also apparently, uh, it would have been about the time she was doing the research for this book, was involved with a documentary on uh, Las Vegas buffets. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I said that as if it were totally baffling, uh, but it is in fact not because I, I have never been to Vegas, but I have heard that uh, Las, Las uh, Vegas buffets are are something, let's say, right? One of those things that happen that maybe uh, is intended to make you think that not everything here is so depressing when in fact it might actually just be another depressing thing. <laughs> well, isn't that the buffet in a general sense? Yeah. Like, look at this plenitude. Uh -huh. It gives you depression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, and look, I, 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 uh, I haven't had the opportunity to go to very many buffets as an adult because I haven't had meat in a very long time, and buffets kind of like live and die in the South, kind of live and die on that. Uh, but uh, I remember as a child, awesome. What a great time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so the reason I said that is that I actually uh, took w w one step further. Um, <laughs> you went and met Natasha Dalshul. I did. I I, <laughs> I began a correspondence, and I've kept all the letters, and I will begin <laughs> to read them. No, uh, <laughs> the uh, I, I I read Natasha Dalshul's uh, CV. Mm -hmm. Did you do this? No, I did not. It's the kind of thing, the kind of document that you look at it and you think, well, I guess I've never done anything. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've never accomplished a single thing in my life. Um, it, and, I'm, and I say that jokingly. I, it, it, it is the case that Shul, uh, as the acknowledgments say, right? You know, uh, the acknowledgments for this book say that um, she began working on this project as an undergraduate. Wow. It was like part of, I think, it seems like an honors thesis or something like that. And then it just kept going because she did a undergrad at Berkeley, mm -hmm. a master's at Berkeley, and a PhD at Berkeley. So like fairly accessible to Vegas. You know, it's mm -hmm. not next door, but it's not half the mm -hmm. country away. Yeah. They'd make um, you walk that in a Fallout game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be great if in New Vegas you could walk to Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> The history of human consciousness <laughs> department. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's where the uh, where the uh, all the robots that control Berkeley are. <laughs> There's an astonishing amount of field work that is evident here. An unbelievable amount of field work of talking to human beings and just going to Vegas and um, being able to walk around and talk to people, and and that's something that that maybe we don't. We've never had an opportunity to talk about on the show before because it's never really come up so much, um, you know, precisely because the kinds of ethnography work that we have talked about so far has been a lot of digital ethnography or a lot of localized stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I'm thinking about uh, Seth Giddings's work, but it's with his own children, right? Mm -hmm. So accessible and um, uh, T.L. Taylor going to that uh, like uh, convention thing um, that she went to, but that was like in Boston. You know, and and of course, people travel for books and things like that, and go to archives. I'm not in any way saying that uh, we have not read books that have cost money to do, but the kind of work that this one requires, which is repeatedly going over and over again to 
industry, um, uh, you know, um, uh, what industry events, conventions. I don't know why I couldn't come mm-hmm. up with the word industry conventions with going to, uh, to interview people at, at the production facilities where things are happening, driving around in Vegas, having hotel rooms to do that, you know, to, to spend time and do all this field work. Mm-hmm. That stuff costs a lot of money. And it is not something that I would have been able to afford as a graduate student, just period, even probably grant funded. Like there's no world in which I could have studied Vegas in this way in graduate school. So there, there's a way that, that I think in academia, we often, um, I mean, you know, it's not polite in bourgeois society to talk about money. Yeah. That's, that's maybe what I'm saying, right? And some research is more expensive than other research. And the way that one is able to access that money, um, and Shul, it looks like it was like on the grind about getting grants. And if there's one thing in academia that we know, it's that grants confer other grants, right? So you mm-hmm. get one and you get another, you get another, you get another, you get another. Um, and that allows you to do um, all kinds of interesting work. But, and it seems like this is, uh, a, a book that was able to be supported in a lot of different ways, either by buying Shul's time or by actually granting things to, to pay for the research. And so if you look at this book and you think, as I did many times, holy shit, look at the amount of work it took to do it. The money to support that work came from somewhere. And, uh, you know, it's from the grant system that is um, highly difficult to navigate in academia um, and uh, often weighted and ex- accessed in very different ways by very different sets of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're at a small, um, you know, PhD program somewhere in the middle of the Midwest, you're, the likelihood of applying for a grant and getting it is probably going to be less than someone who is applying um, who has Berkeley on their CV, which, again, is never to minimize the work that Shul is doing here. Uh, but to say that there is a prestige economy in academia that allows you to do certain work and allow and, and prevents other people from doing other kinds of work. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what do you think about this book, Michael? Well, like I said, I think it's really good. I think, um, I mean, the the work that went into it is evident in the way that uh, it's got a, an abundance of information. Um, just, uh, so many case studies, so many interviews, so much, uh, just like straight up, like these are conversations that Shul has had and she is like taking details from these conversations and using them to piece together her argument. And that's not just with, uh, people at these trade shows, uh, and the people who are uh, in charge of designing these machines. It's, uh, she's like hanging out, um, at gambling, uh, or gamblers anonymous meetings, uh, mm-hmm. multiple, uh, instances of these meetings, it sounds like, and then like checking in with people later on, uh, all of this stuff is, is there. She's also doing a lot of historical work. There's like some fascinating historical stuff that comes up in here that we'll probably talk about a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's readable like this is uh, we, we've said so many things about like this book in, in the big picture, right? That it is uh, one really good too depressing, uh, but three also like it is extremely readable. Um, like Shul is a very good stylist. Uh, and so even though this is also a very hefty book, uh, it's it's longer than the normal uh, length of book that we tend to do for this show. Um, and uh it, it like feels like you're getting a lot of information, but it reads easy. Uh, so I really liked that. Yeah, there's a full hundred pages of of it notes. Yeah, like a straight up, you know, or maybe it's closer to like, no, it's it's a hundred, <laughs> including the bibliography. <laughs> it literally is 100 pages. So, yeah, it yeah. is. A, it is a well cited, well 
engaged book. But yeah, I, I also thought rhetorically uh, very powerful in its narrativizing. I have a couple places in the book where I, I want to kind of push on that a little bit because mm -hmm. I this book is somewhere between... Not somewhere between. This book is like at the top of the pile of like the way that one could and should write an academic monograph. Mm -hmm. Side note, this is not how I write anything. And so it's it, reading this and like finishing up the copy edits on my own book it makes me feel like I am the worst writer on the planet. Because like <laughs> sometimes at the end of the day, I just have to like write like a math problem, right? Like mm -hmm. this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And so then therefore this other thing happens, right? And that's the only way I can kind of think and get through it. And Shul is able to, like, you're watching someone juggle. And mm -hmm. so it really is an impressive kind of model. At the same time, I don't know if it's a model that I could ever follow. <laughs> um, you know, so, so there's that. But at the other times, there's something going on here that feels like um, a really smart New York Times uh, bestseller, like nonfiction book. Yes, this feels like a book with uh, actually, despite its length and density, uh, I think has really strong uh, crossover potential. Or did? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it did cross over. Maybe everyone <laughs> was reading this like eight years ago and we missed it. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know if it crossed over. I mean, I know that people in the industry, because I've, I've seen people um, like game developers talk about this book. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that some people have, but also some people can read any book. So who knows? But um, it, it is interesting to me that that second book, I, I also looking on that website, it, it is with not with a university press. It's with Ferris, Strauss and Guru. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I think that Shul kind of sees that direction as well. But but the, the reason I bring that up is that a few times in this book, Shul pulls the maneuver of like getting inside of a human being's head and like stating what the world looks like to them from inside their head. Mm -hmm. And it is such a clever, uh, like magic trick that that happens all the time in like nonfiction, but n very rarely happens in academic work. And it's, it kind of feels like cheating a little bit <laughs> where it's like, I, like I can tell you, I can schematize a world and I can tell you what a thing does to me, but I don't think I can get inside a gambling addict's head when they're at a machine. And yet, right. From all these kind of pieces, she'll, clearly feels like um, that that's like a verified maneuver. And I, I'm not saying that it's not a verified maneuver, but it is one that is much more uh, apparent in, in um, uh, crossover books or popular press books or trade press books than it is academic books. It does not tend to be, at least in any of the fields I'm a part of, it doesn't tend to be a maneuver. And that lens, the reason I'm bringing that up, is that lens to the readability of it is mm -hmm. it starts feeling like a little bit like a story. Mm -hmm. And she's very good at weaving people's first-hand experiences into the book too so uh, i think you're exactly right it, it, very readable and also very um uh summarizable i i i say this somewhere in my notes but uh shul is an amazing person at transitions <laughs> because you could have five or six paragraphs in a row that if you take a step back and look at them they have nothing to do with one another Mm -hmm. Like they are just pieces of information mm -hmm. and yet the transitions between them are so naturalistic that you are like, Oh yeah, this is a linear argument that's doing something. And it all of course gets bunched together at the end. I mean, it's, it's truly a um, brilliant thing to like watch someone do because it does come together, but mm -hmm. it, and kind of retroactively feels like it was all of a piece. But if you look at the individual bits of information, they're like just stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm really I'm very envious of that style of writing. But, mm -hmm. It uh, does this thing where it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like a bunch of threads kind of running in parallel. And then at a certain point in the book, they all start getting twined together. And then you're like, mm -hmm. oh, hot damn. Yep. <laughs>
Well, we've said all of our unalloyed praise, so let's start the absolute hateration. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the, if, you're, if this is your first episode, this is what we do: praise for the first half and scorn for the second. Absolute scorn. We're gonna we're gonna sandwich critique this bat. No, I, I mean it's it's that's not going to happen. No. Um, I, there are things that I'm critical of in this book, but overall, I think if you're interested in reading this book and you don't want to like hear us talk through it bit by bit, just turn this off and go buy the book and read it. Yeah, um, I think the book probably does most of the the work itself for you to explain itself. But if you'd rather listen to the show, we're gonna keep talking about it for at least another hour. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know is that is that enough for the the top here or uh, do we got other things we want to say generally about the book? Uh, no, I think that was it. So I think we can just uh, move on here and kind of uh, bit by bit give a schematic overview of, of this book and what it's about and how it works. I'll allow it. <laughs> Uh, so like many books, this one begins with an introduction that wow. lays out kind of the whole argument. I feel like I'm being lured into, into doing oh, oh, okay. This. I, I don't know. I, I'm just like trying to, do, I'm just trying to do a segue, man. Oh, I see. I see. I, I got it. Oh, okay. 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 Good, 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 good. Uh, yeah. Uh, what about this machine zone? <laughs> uh, number, introduction. Mapping the machine zone. Mm-hmm. Part one. What's the machine zone? Yeah. And why is Dr. Robotnik there? <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Eggman. Metal Sonic goes to Vegas. Uh, so uh, the the book is the, the introduction, right, is is a real sort of like case study in how the rest of this book is going to work, because we begin with this like beautifully uh, sort of, you know, anthropological kind of move where it's uh, uh, Shul talking or like it's, it's a discussion or like interview Shul has with a, a gambling addict. Um. And all of the there, all of these people have names and you kind of get to know them over the course of the book. Right. There are some who get talked to more than others, and some of them are kind of like repeat interviewees. Um, and uh, this woman uh, is talking about how when she gambles, uh, I mean, she's she's a, a, you know, a gambling addict. And she has I think she's maybe in recovery or has tried to recover and relapsed a couple of times. Um, and she's talking to Shul about how, uh, you know, one of the things that people don't seem to understand about her situation as a gambling addict, at least, and this tends uh, or this ends up being kind of transposable onto a lot of people who who are gambling addicts, uh, is that uh, when she sits down at the machine and she plays and she plays for hours and hours, um, she's not playing to win. Right. The, the there might be this misapprehension that a lot of people have that like uh, gamblers are just people who are kind of in love with the idea of getting rich quick. Right. They want to like give just a little bit and then get a huge return. And they're just like overly dedicated to this idea. If you, in fact, go back to our episode on Kelwa, man playing games, this is kind of a, a moralistic outlook that he has about gamblers. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, what this woman is saying is that, like, that's that's not why I play at all. I do not play to win. Right. That is a direct quote. She's not playing to win. Uh, In fact, uh, she is chasing a kind of uh, effective state um, that in this introduction, Shul calls the machine zone uh, and that I think that the woman herself just calls the zone. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
so on page 12, just quoting here, um, you know, gambling is not about getting a uh, quote, something for nothing, but quote, instead, the solitary absorptive activity can suspend time, space, monetary value, social roles, and sometimes even one's very sense of existence. Um, so there is this, uh, and, and the other thing that is important here is that, uh, Shul having talked to many gambling addicts, and I think this is, you know, not just unique to Shul's research. I think this is a thing that's come up in, in other types of, um, research on, on these issues. A lot of, uh, gam, uh, like gambling addicts describe this precise kind of thing, right? A kind of chasing of a, a, a sort of, uh, um, almost continuous state of, uh, like weird self abnegation, right? It's not so, it, like we, we get so much of this later on in the book, but it's like, you know, people, people who don't get up to go to the bathroom for hours mm -hmm. on end, because, uh, there is something about like the timing of the machine and like the way the results are displayed, the way the numbers go up and down, like you're just constantly like it's, it's, a uh, in, this is a very, uh, uh, close, I think kind of comparison to be made here. Uh, I think in video games, people who play video games, uh, uh, sort of more generally, uh, we talk, we call this kind of the, uh, the just one more round kind of mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm playing an RTS and I have to go to bed, but I'm just going to I'm just going to do uh, one more round or I'm going to get this one thing done and that'll set me up to do something tomorrow. Except once I've got it done. Oh, well, I have another thing to do. Like, I could just go ahead and do that thing right now because it's not going to take long. Right. This feeling of like constant sort of extension uh, away from uh, sort of like what you on an in another kind of, you know, cognitive capacity know is that like I should get up and go to the bathroom or I should go to bed. But uh, this kind of um just zone right of being in the zone of uh play yeah it's it's really interesting right you know i i'm very much on the record of as uh, someone who does not experience flow in a general sense but i definitely have you know just one more round one more turn syndrome mm -hmm. um you know as it often gets done and and what's fascinating to me and I, I totally understand that connection but what seems to be a little bit different about those things is that the, the people in the machine zone throughout the, this entire book, they're like actively chasing the, the like uh, obliterating their body. Mm -hmm. Like they, they are not, you know, there, there's a discussion later in the book of a woman who uh, had recently had a baby and she's, you know, uh, leaking milk all down the front of her, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, shirt the whole time because she's just not thinking about it. And so there's somewhere, it's somewhere in between those two things, right? Uh, it seems like some of these people legitimately in the interviews, you know, they have lost any kind of thought about their body on purpose, you know, mm -hmm. and, and really are chasing, uh, I guess, dissociation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Shoal stops right short of saying that, but uh, I think that's, you know, implied here. And, and some people seem like hyper, hyper aware of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting about what, you know, one more turn-ism, right? And, and I'm not poking on that. I think this is an appropriate uh, connection to make. But why I'm poking at it is that it, it seems to me that there's something really interesting that games build in all of these, like, weird breakpoints that the gambling machines purposely get rid of. Yeah. And, and yet the games are very good at dragging you back in, right? So, like, when I'm playing Crusader Kings 3, 
and it's 1 a.m. and I know I should go to bed, I will get up and go to the bathroom and then come back and keep playing Crusader Kings, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually kind of not really the case, it seems like, for a huge number of gamblers, mm -hmm. uh, is that they they it, once you get up, once you introduce a break point, it's kind of hard to come back because you're not in the zone, and that's why so much of the machine design that we learn about in this book is about minimizing any of those kind of come-back-to-yourself moments, you know? Um, uh, get away from the thing. So in, in some ways, I think that the video game problem might be, uh, uh, di it's different, but maybe more striking in mm -hmm. that it, it surpasses the the things that actually break gamblers from the machines quite easily. You know, I, yeah, just one more turn. Let me go do a bunch of other shit and then I'll come back and keep playing even against my own best interest, mm -hmm. uh, which seems to happen less for the, the kind of gamblers here. But yeah, they're all chasing this. I mean, this becomes the... Um, the, one of the key terms, if not the most important key term throughout the entire book, the machine zone and how the machine zone gets fabricated. Mm -hmm. um, because the the kind of primary question in understanding gambling, it seems like uh, that, that what Shul is telling us here, the primary question is when someone sits down to gamble and and does not stop, is it the fault of the machines? Is it the fault of the casinos? Or is it the fault of their own psychological pathology? Mm -hmm. you know, is, is it you sitting down and making a choice as a rational human being? Or are you being chained to a machine mm -hmm. by mechanisms that you are not aware of? Mm -hmm. And Shul, um, in, in true academic mode, never really comes down to a strong determination one or the other. But gives us a preponderance of evidence that it's one other than more than the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, she, she uh, digs into the idea of like, quote unquote, problem gambling, as I believe it first gets formulated in the DSM as a as a psychological disorder um, and sort of the history of that idea uh, that there are pe like the so problem gambling is the notion that uh, in in the big picture Anyone, in theory, could sit down at a slot machine and gamble. Of all of these people, there is some percentage, the minority, who uh, have something interior to them that just make them extremely weak to gambling, and they are going to become problem gamblers. Uh, and this is an idea that is uh, very attractive to people who make gambling machines, people who run casinos. Uh, a great one of the things that becomes clear as, as you go through this book is that a great deal of our gambling legislation is, in fact, written uh, with this idea in mind that there are certain like that gambling addiction is a personal problem, right? That when it, what it comes down to is that there are just certain people who shouldn't be gambling, but you can't legislate those people because no one knows who they are. Um, so you just kind of have to like, uh, well, like warp yourself around this idea that, uh, there are some people who are just going to have a problem with it and that's just what it is and like, hope they get help. Right. God bless. Um, and obviously like you can hear in my kind of recapitulation of this idea that, uh, uh, you get the sense throughout the book also that maybe, maybe it's something more than that. And the framework that Shul adopts is very, uh, Latourian, uh, Bruno Latour is someone who's come up on this show before, but, uh, you know, a philosopher of like science and technology and society. Um, and he, uh, I think you put it in your notes, uh, very well, uh, where, uh, the Latourian method, uh, by talking about how there are people who are doing things and then there are also kind of objects that people interact with. And it is, in fact, kind of objects and technologies that uh, provide uh, mechanisms for the facilitation of certain kinds of action and the in 
inhibition of others, right? So, uh, you know, in, in the case of these gambling machines, uh, there are one of the things you learn is that there are payment systems that eventually get introduced into slot machines that mean that you don't have to get up and go to the ATM to get more coins or whatever, because you just have a card that has your credits on it and you can just swipe it and put more credits on. Right. And so that facilitates mm-hmm. uh, longer what they what they call time on device. Um which is a time a, on device. Yeah. Think about that term that we hear, I think, quite a lot now in contexts where maybe we're not talking about gambling, supposedly. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, uh, so anyway, right. Like in, in the Latourian sense, right. We can see how uh, the design of the machine here uh, inscribes a certain kind of uh, a program for action for the human user. And the uh, overall situation is not kind of like the responsibility of the machine or the responsibility responsibility of the person it's like it's the way that the machine and the person kind of zip together right they lock together like the teeth in a zipper um and i as you put it right there there's a an interesting way like a very latourian way in which that kind of like uh uh not not necessarily exculpates uh things happening here but it's like huh there's a huge problem that doesn't seem to belong to anyone and it's kind of floating in between these two things um mm-hmm it, it emanates from everywhere and nowhere. Yeah, everywhere and nowhere. Uh, but it also seems like hmm, there's an awful lot of people who have a, a lot of say so over how these machines get built. And they have a lot of really weird and inconsistent thoughts, like uh, not to jump too far ahead. But one of the best things about kind of the back half of this book, when we start getting uh, Shul talking with more of the like casino executives and designers um, mm-hmm. is when she's just like, here's how here's how a designer explained like, you know, or like rationalized or justified their methods uh, to me um, a little bit of some other stuff. Uh and then some more quotes from that designer and then Shul being like, the designer got kind of confused when I pointed out that he was contradicting himself, right? That he had that actually, happens. that he yeah, had that actually like, several times. Right, right, right. This happens multiple times throughout this book where like they give conflicting kind of uh, narratives for what it is they think that they're doing. Um, and it's like the narratives conflict in such a way that they leave kind of this aporia, right? The, the sort of like empty space between them, uh, which is precisely where this problem lives, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think other big things that, that matter here. So, you know, big stakes of the book. Uh, this introduction is called Mapping the Machine Zone for a reason. Shoal mm-hmm. is trying to figure out when someone sits down at a gambling machine and they kind of get hooked in and they're just feeding their money into a device. How does that happen? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is the big old machinery that makes that work? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then comes to a couple different conclusions, or, or not conclusions, but a couple different pathways that will get followed up through the book. One is that obviously these things are designed; these uh, you know gambling machines, um, they are designed in such a way that make you want to sit there and do stuff with them. So how does that happen? So mm-hmm. that shows up in part one, which is design, and we're going to talk about those chapters. Um, another one of those, w- which is really interesting, is that. There is a because uh, Shoal is is basically ejecting pathology immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, she she's pretty clear here in this introduction. Like you said, once you introduce um, uh, 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 game problem gambling into the uh, GSM, you have now allowed everyone to scapegoat onto psychological problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh well, it's just problem. You know, some people's wiring is wrong. 
And so then that's their problem for them to deal with, right? And so she very quickly is like, that is insufficient to actually talk about what happens here. Um, and so the other one that shows up here is uh, that, you know, what would be the motivations for someone to sit down, sit there and do it? And one that kind of comes up through the middle couple chapters, I would say, is this notion, this is a quote um, from page 13. So it's a notion that that's kind of embodied in this, right? Quote, the continuity of machine gambling holds worldly contingencies in a kind of abeyance, granting uh, the gambler an otherwise elusive zone of certainty. Mm-hmm. So Shul is saying, like, in a world of, like, purely random chance and, like, bad things can happen to you at any turn, uh, what comes up over and over again in these interviews are people saying, yes, this game of chance is actually my biggest uh, source of dependency in the world. Or dependability, I guess, not mm-hmm. dependency. Because you know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose all your money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, there's a finite point. You know the system. The system is going to keep happening over and over again. So, uh, you know, uh, Scholl is doing this, you know, uh, almost Foucault-style inversion of what our belief is here. Our belief is that when you gamble, you're just throwing money to random chance. Mm-hmm. What Scholl is saying is that for many people who gamble regularly... The reason that they do it is that it's about absolute certainty. You know mm-hmm. what's going to happen. And she's going to play that out over a couple uh, sections, actually, of this book um, in the many, many ways that people experience that, both as loss and then in the way that these machines get designed to give you more opportunities to feel like you were interacting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to have a lot, I think, to speak to uh, video games when we get there. <laughs> I was going to say, there's there's some resonance here, uh, just to flag it, with uh, McKinsey Works' idea of game space. And, and sort yeah, of absolutely right in the fan like uh, go back to that episode uh, read that book um, gamer theory uh, and sort of this idea that game space like uh, game space is sort of the the fantasy of a uh, rational and just world where you can figure out the rules and then operationalize them in a way that uh, you actually cannot outside of the game mm-hmm. and, and the rise of the the gambling industry right from deregulation in the 1970s up through now it, even more deregulation as time has gone on, it matches to the rise of game space. You mm-hmm. know, I, game space really is emerging post 1945, but I think that, you know, w- works examples are not from the prehistory of games, right? They are from the emergence of games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the 1970s until now. They, they are all part of a, a tech industry um, that has expanded and uh, eaten big parts of our lives. I, I mean, I think there's a reason that that Shul moves from uh, this book into a project about how lots of these systems have been applied to sensor technology that we carry around with us. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, And so then the final thing I think that's really important here from this introduction is that there is something really strange that... that um, Shul is interested in here about how you can be from a widely gamblers can be from a wildly diverse set of material conditions. Mm -hmm. And yet they all end up describing or many of them end up describing the act of gambling, why it's interesting for them and how they kind of get sucked into it, quote unquote, right? Or how they get attractive to it. Or in some cases, how they are triggered into, you know, kind of compulsive behavior. Um, They all end up kind of describing it the same way. Uh, So this is from page 23, quote, extended, intensive and repeated encounters with the same machine interface seem to bring gamblers from diverse walks of life into a shared zone of experience, cutting through and across the differences between them. And so there is something going on that is shared in in compulsive gambling or in uh, um, just extensive gambling 
and that seems to be on the on the structure of the experience you know the, the way the machine determines it right so those are the big ideas about like what what what's going on with the machine zone well it's about people and it's about the things they're interacting with but more importantly it's how similar structures of human life came to come to kind of appear over and over again um, even though I think that Shoal is really fighting against it in a weird way or, or not aligned with this in any particular purposeful way, this, this, reading this book really uh, made me think about what uh, Alexander Galloway has called, you know, the return of structuralism. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, fewer flows, uh, even though this is a book full of flows, but really looking at, like, what are the things that structure um, experience or culture or moments in the world, and then how are they augmented and how do they transition over time? This is a book that's trying to put some very clear brackets around those things so we can analyze them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there, there's a lot of interesting kind of philosophy stuff that's um, um, peppered through here that I'm uh, happy to talk about when we get there. But I, I would say that for the most part, this is a work of cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's interested in what do people say and how do they do stuff in the world. So the big picture here is that the book has four parts um, and 10 chapters. So the first part has three chapters. Second part has three. Part three has two and part four has two. And then there's a conclusion Uh, of the four parts. They are in order design, feedback, addiction and adjustment. And those various parts and their, you know, contained chapters are about what you would think that they are about. So part one design is about uh, the design of various things, not just the gambling machines themselves, but also the interior space of casinos. Um, Part two is about, uh, which is part two called feedback, is about uh, sort of the uh, ways that casinos or like gambling industries interface with uh, customer data that they generate. How do they want to generate more customer data? Uh, and how do they kind of like uh, modulate, especially with the casinos, how do casinos kind of modulate uh, like their relationships with like return customers, which is some really weird stuff there. Um Uh, Part three, addiction, is about the experience of uh, gambling addiction. Um, And then part four is uh, sort of about responses to gambling addiction, um, both at kind of the individual level, like how how are people kind of... uh, medicating themselves or sort of like what are the the therapeutics available but then also like what is the industry's response to this problem and how does it sort of uh, acknowledge that problem gamblers exist and also how does it constantly kind of wiggling itself off the hook for being responsible for these people mm-hmm. so chapter one of part one is all about the interior design of casinos mm-hmm. uh, what's what's the big takeaway here for you Cameron well, actually, can we talk about this defibrillator oh, thing? Oh, shit. I forgot that. This is a nightmare. Yeah. So each of these. Oh, uh, well, let's talk quickly about misery. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. So we said this is a book is like miserable. Um, and that's a word that I, I was I was sharing with uh, Michael beforehand. Uh, both right now, I, I am reading this book. Or obviously, I finished this book by now. Uh, as I furiously read the end of the book right now. <laughs> no. Uh, but uh, this, and then we're also reading The Talisman uh, mm-hmm. for our other podcast, Just King Things. And it's also a book that is just full of human misery. And uh, I, I, it's just a heavy, heavy load of like bad things happening to people because for the most part, uh, you in this book are getting to see the most like craven corporate behavior 
in the in the nightmare dystopia we live in mm-hmm. on one hand and then you get to see people who you know they're on the bad end of that corporate behavior and so their lives are mostly ruined mm-hmm. um they are they are in truly dire situations and you know many of which i have some you know if not direct familiar with then a passing familiarity with because i grew up in extreme poverty mm-hmm. uh and so really really reading this i was like dang and in in some ways i thought you know my my i i kind of had two thoughts about it on on one hand it needs to be starkly represented mm-hmm. right like i think it, it is important to not uh kind of beat around the bush about it Hey, gambling does bad things to people. It's true. And and gambling that you can't kind of get a handle on or that is being foisted upon you to prevent you from getting a handle on it, it will ruin your life. It's just like a fact. That is true. On the other hand, at some point, it just feels like almost pornographic in Mm -hmm. the levels of detail and human misery that we get to. And there's one particularly affecting uh, kind of self-narrative by someone. Um, and yeah, I just had this really kind of conflicted feeling about it where on one hand, I think that these people, especially the ones who openly shared their stories for this book, truly brave in that, you know, that that's a vulnerability, even anonymously, that is, uh, uh, there's a, there's a cost, a psychological and emotional cost to sharing that with people, especially in a book that will be read by who knows how many people. Mm Mm-hmm. On the other hand, at some points it feels like, yeah, we've got it. Like, I get it. I do, I do not need, uh, I, I don't need to continue to read two more pages of this narrative about um, the way that this person, you know, received uh, psychological and physical and then like monetary abuse. Um, and and it, it feels a little bit leering at some points, right? Can you believe this is what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a really kind of conflicted set of feelings about it. And that I think, I'm not just saying that in a broad sense. I think that kind of set in here with this defibrillator thing, which is to to sum it up. Each of these parts, or you know, part one design, the ones that Michael just read off, each of them have like a little section that's associated with them that kind of sets the tone for the next thing. Design obviously has to do with the design of machines and also the design of casinos, mm-hmm. mostly design of casinos here, and uh, it's about how ambulances parking in front of casinos are bad for business. Mm-hmm. So they're not allowed to. And casinos are built like mazes. And so if you have a heart attack or any kind of health issue in a casino, it is there's an inflated amount of time that it takes to get to you to save your life. And so casinos have had to invent all kinds of like basically medic training programs for security guards to keep you from dying. Yep. And if you are dying, no one cares Mm -hmm. other than the security guards because it's like a liability issue for the casino. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's the story here that kind of I think it ends with a story of someone. Well, she's uh, watching. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. the, The important thing is like they literally invented a new type of defibrillator. That could be operated by people with minimal experience or medical training uh, precisely because like for casinos, because people would have heart attacks on the casino floor so frequently. And it was such a problem getting uh, either EMTs to them or uh, getting them out to someone who could help them. So they like there was a new type of defibrillator that was designed specifically for this situation. 
you know, uh, capitalism breeds innovation. Uh-huh. We all know that. Uh, a real incubator for uh, the uh, improving human life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did get the survival rate way up. So, I, you know, I mean, I can't guess argue true. with results. You can't argue with you can't argue with the math on that one, but but it ends kind of with the stark um, experience that Shoal has uh, interviewing the person who invented this like defibrillation, uh, both item and training program and technique. I, I'm not quite sure where the exact innovation, you know, the big innovation there was, but uh, the so she's watching this video, the security video, and there's like someone who is straight up dying. He has like fallen on the ground and is dying in front of people, and they will not take their eyes off the gambling machine to like even acknowledge that this person is dying of a heart attack at their feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, the person is coming in with the defibrillator to do everything, and all of the gamblers around him are just ignoring him. Yeah, and it's like, uh oh, this might be a problem. Mm hmm. Uh, but then we go right into chapter one, interior design for interior states, architecture, ambiance, affect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just, this is kind of, uh, it gets a lot of really fine grain detail. Again, uh, you know, you could, you could condense this down uh, to what Cameron said, that casinos are built like mazes, and that is intentional. Uh, this is done for a variety of reasons. Um, but what is really sort of, and this is one of those things that I think is almost like common knowledge, at least at this point, I know I've heard this before, right? That, uh, casinos, the hallways are designed in such a way to like constantly bring you back around to machine floors or to like, you know, uh, draw you toward play floors and things like that. Um, they intentionally make it kind of confusing so that uh, you might get a little bit lost and you have to keep seeing these machines while you're trying to find whatever whatever it is you're actually looking for. Uh, these are all things that I think I've heard. Um, but what is really astonishing about, like, for instance, this chapter and many of the chapters to follow is uh, all of the discussions that Shul has, uh, quoted discussions that she has with uh, people who are designing these these floors and how they are saying, like, yes, we are intentionally designing confusing things that make you look at the machines as much as possible but also uh and this is where it also gets interesting um how do you design for something that is kind of uh you know manipulative and hostile to the people who are in it uh without them realizing that they are in a manipulative space yeah and it's fascinating to see all the mechanisms i mean they're they're i so have, have you been to a casino and gotten lost before absolutely not i've never been to a casino I have definitely had this experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had the I I I, uh, uh, I I mean I guess more than two years ago now, uh, but you know maybe in the past five years somewhere in there, uh, like after a conference, after an academic conference, several of us there was a casino locally, and so several of us like we're like yeah let's go to the casino and like drink or, and do whatever right as one does, and I, and I will also say that one of the uh, one of the people uh, in fact the person I was staying with. Um, uh, is perhaps not a compulsive gambler, but certainly likes to gamble and is pretty successful at it, um, at, at playing uh, poker in particular. And so they were like real hype on it. Like, yeah, let's go to the casino. And so uh, so we all go and like I'm just like hanging out at the bar and like, you know, a few people are playing whatever. And uh, it, I, I think I went to like look and find and see if I could find food and just got straight up lost. 
Mm-hmm. And this is like a small regional casino. This is not a Vegas style thing, right? Because mm-hmm. I've never been to Vegas. But I got just straight up lost. And, you know, as I'm reading this, it's all the same stuff. So, you know, one of the things is breaking up sight lines, you know, mm-hmm. making it feel like you're in like a little pod of the world, you know, that you can't see too far away from yourself at any moment. Um, I think actually that if you go to any given shopping mall, you know, if, if, if you have like a large mall around you in the year 2022, um, and you've been there over the past several years, you see a lot of the same stuff. So, you know, like the big wide panels that are in front of the doors that block your ability to actually see outside, mm-hmm. uh, you have to walk around them. That that very much is a casino kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I, some of this other stuff that I just wasn't aware of, but I can think back and absolutely see this, one of which is that people are attracted to spaces that have like a low ceiling. So your casino ceilings can be high, but you need to create these like clustered zones that have smaller ceilings that people want want to go stand under. Um, So there's all this kind of like, um, you know, affordance psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is maybe why, you know, I've repeatedly said that the, you know, the design of everyday things is like a book I do not like. And I think it has like all these lessons in it that I think are maybe destructive for uh, uh, um, g- uh, design that I like, maybe not good design, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But I, this is just straight up the design of everyday things as applied to the architecture of space. Um, you know, it is not as as Scholl points out. Uh, it's not about like a modernist project of like enlightenment or Im- improvement through architecture. It is just about robbing you. Mm-hmm as efficiently as possible. And she brings in the Jameson critique of learning from Las Vegas, a very famous book from the eighties that like talks about the architecture of Vegas. Um, actually took a, a class on here. Let me, let me take a little, uh, side stroll. You, you want to take a little side stroll? Sure. With me, sure. Yeah. Well, let's go down this little hallway, uh, with a low ceiling. It feels really comfy to me. feels comfy. Let's go stand by the water fountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, I was in grad school taking a summer course. Because what else am I doing? Mm-hmm. Taking summer course. It's on post Marxisms. It's with Ted Friedman. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ted. Mm-hmm. So Ted Friedman, not related to the Friedman, as say. far as I know, <laughs> of Friedman design principles, who is quoted throughout this chapter. But it is quite an interesting thing. Uh, so taking a class with Ted. Great class. Always want to shout out Ted. Great, great uh, graduate uh, teacher. Very smart. Taught me a lot of great stuff about game studies and Marxism and all kinds of stuff in between. Ted uh, says, hey, I got to cancel class next week. And we say, why, Ted? And then he says, I'm going to Las Vegas to get married. (laughs) (laughs) And we said, why, Ted? And he said, I just, I want to do it. So he goes, and, and they, you know, he and his partner have been together for quite a long while uh, but they decide to go like, you know, the weekend hitched kind of thing, uh-huh. you know, Elvis Chapel, that whole thing. Class the next week, we like read, we read Hart and Negri or something. Ted comes back. I, you know, I don't, this is almost 10 years ago at this point. So who knows what happens? But it, immediately, I think Ted's not prepped for this course. Ted's not ready. Ted does not want to talk about Hart and Negri or whatever we're reading. <laughs> Ted brings up his. Photos from Las Vegas that he took while he was there on his wedding and begins to talk us through the entire argument of learning from Las Vegas, <laughs> which he had either revisited right before he went or just knew. This is something I will also say uh, that's important about Ted Friedman, uh, Dr. Ted Friedman, could basically recount from memory 
most major Marxist texts from the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Kind of astonishing. Really impressive. And would often monologue for like 45 minutes where he's just explaining how you do it. You can maybe see part of the model for the show <laughs> coming from, <laughs> from that. And perhaps even the story itself. But so my, so I've never read uh, Learning from Las Vegas, but I am very familiar with it because I sat in a room for two hours while Chad flipped through his vacation photos and then talk, and he would be like, and here I went to the neon graveyard. Here's what they say about the neon graveyard. Here are all the images I took of the neon signs that are being destroyed <laughs> in the neon graveyard. Here's how it works. Here's the back of the sign. Look how it was attached to the thing. It was that level of granular detail. And then in the middle, he's like, here I am getting married by Elvis. Anyway, back to the strip. And here's what the strip looks like. <laughs> and so... Again, never read it before, but, uh, you know, had uh, a, a truly great experience uh, having it recounted to me one time with a lot of firsthand uh, anecdota, uh, which, was, which was really great. Ted was also a student of Fred Jameson, uh, mm-hmm. Frederick Jameson, and so I really, you know, got that version of it, too, because I say all that to say. Shul says that, uh, you know, the learning from Las Vegas uh, critique or model of Las Vegas, which is that it's not instructional, it's just kind of postmodern and whatever, ignores the fact that it is highly instructional. Las Vegas is about teaching you how to lose your money mm-hmm. and creating situations in which you do that. And that's kind of what the chapter is, is all about and where it kind of bottoms out or where it ends is that is Deleuze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, but, uh, but, but specifically an essay that I think has come up a few times on the show, which is the uh, Societies of Control essay from the early 90s, one of the last things that uh, Deleuze did um, before he died. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the, the basic argument here is that disciplinary societies, Foucauldian disciplinary societies, ha- are moving away or, or uh, are being um, uh, displaced in primacy by uh, control mechanisms, which means that it's not, did you do something bad, you will be punished for it, or did you do something bad, you need to be morally trained out of it. Um, and it's not the pastoral mode before that either, which is like divine violence of the law just happens and you can't really do much about it, mm-hmm. like a peasant. Um, for, for Deleuze, what, what, what he saw as what was happening in the time he was living and, and, you know, what he thought would happen in the 21st century was a transition into mechanisms of power operating in a way that determine, uh, access and control to things. So for example, one of the things that Alexander Galloway, not to bring him up too often, but his, his book, uh, protocol is playing out this argument. How do the mechanisms of new media, operate protocologically, where they are modulated behind the scenes by manipulating data or the flows of data or whatever um, uh, to prevent you from doing certain things. So a really uh, practical and material example of that is um, if your internet service provider catches you torrenting too many times uh, or downloading things from from the dark web too often, (laughs) um, then they're going to throttle your download speed. Yes. Right, so so it's just purely protocolological. They are going to change the way that you can. Uh, they're going to modulate, in fact, the way that you can access the world. They're not. They're not. It's not disciplinary. They're not. You know, wrapping you over the knuckles here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are going to change your modes of access. And so for for Deleuze, that was that's how power is transforming. Particularly uh, power that does oppressive things to people mm-hmm. is that it will abstract itself to a level of 
access to systems themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, one that really um, came up quite often, um, you know, a few years ago during the Arab Spring in particular, was that many countries just began shutting down their internet mm-hmm. to stop people from, um, uh, or, or shutting down access to social media sites in particular, uh, blocking access to them to prevent people from sharing uh, location data and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't, although they were doing these things, right? Uh, they were imprisoning people. They were, you know, there were moments of uh, fighting in the streets. Same thing happens in the U.S. quite regularly at this point. But it's also about, uh, and they're surveilling them, but it's just as much about jamming broadcast signals or monitoring your phone signal or, you know, in the case of the U.S. protester fairly recently, uh, taking pictures of your shirt and then looking on Etsy to where you could buy that shirt and then contacting an Etsy seller to determine who you are, right? This is using the, the network itself as a way of, of uh, accessing you and doing things to you. Mm-hmm. So that's what casinos are. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. They are about modulating um, the, the kind of protocological experience of them and uh, the affective experience of them. How do you experience it? How do you feel about it? All these things are kind of levers or um, uh, knobs, what Delondo would call knobs, that are being manipulated behind the scenes in such a way as to produce particular feelings in you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't, you, uh, this book I think is a pretty strong indicator. Uh, that the things that you feel when you interact with a media object in a general sense are not things that you can always perceive mm-hmm. um, and, and are factor being done to you as often as you are, are perceiving them as something you want to engage with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I would really position this up against some of the um, uh, affect is phenomenologically accessible arguments that are made in the Aubrey Annable book that we talked about. You know, I know that I went... Uh, pretty hard on that in that episode about you know expressing my feelings um, and and my disagreements, but I think that this chapter one, particularly or chapter one and into chapter two, is a pretty good lever for for trying to get under that argument mm-hmm. um, that you know I I there is an inhumanness to this whole thing um, at the level of the machine and the level of what affects or get produced that might not be processable. Uh, bias at any given moment mm-hmm. and but, I, I, so that's me talking for a long time <laughs> i apologize but i learned from the best well uh, I, I just wanted to add i think we get some of the comments from uh the gambling addicts in this chapter as well and i think they're actually a really good example of what you're talking about about uh you know affect being um sometimes and to some degree non-processable in that these are people who uh they they come to recognize some of these design cues uh, mm-hmm. and nevertheless, right. It is the design cue itself that they, they feel like they, they, they feel like that is what pulls them in, right. It's about the lighting. It's about the sound. It's about, uh, kind of being off in your own little pod of space. Uh, and the lesson that, uh, Shul draws out of this is that to some degree, right. The, um, the design of the casino is mirroring the effective experience of the, des- of the zone. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is uh, a sort of mm-hmm. like convergence that is happening that these uh, these gambling addicts kind of almost don't like they're not like I sat down the first time to to gamble because I really liked the lighting and sound design. Um, and it's only after kind of these things have gotten their hooks in them that they realize like, oh, this is a thing that triggers me. Right. These are the things mm-hmm. that like pull me in, um, which is, you know, uh, 
very depressing. Uh, and that leads into chapter two, which is engineering experience, the productive economy of player centric design. Uh, and we learn that most casinos and in like game manufacturers um, are chasing something uh, that is called throughout. But first on page 52, quote, continuous gaming productivity. Yeah, the industry terms in this book are just genius you could write a science fiction novel that's about like the worst dystopia that we could imagine and just take the real terms that are in this book and just populate your world with them yeah really <laughs> uh, uh because in in like this is the other thing that's you know really depressing about this book is like seeing how uh these ideas with slightly different terms are filtering into other spaces right this idea of continuous gaming productivity uh is like straight up like what we talk about when we talk about crypto in games uh when mm -hmm. people are saying like oh you can play to earn mm -hmm. uh because uh, for for the casino, obviously, gaming productivity is like how much this is the other like sort of genius of this phrasing productivity to the casino is the person sitting on the machine and slowly putting all of their money into the machine like that is what they are producing is the act of taking money out of their bank account and putting it into the casino's bank account. <laughs> yeah, they, um, they are like a they're like a almost like. You know, what's the, what's a thing in, uh, like, a pipe that's got, like, a valve, you know, and, it, and like, water is on one side, like a, like a, like a sluice gate, I guess. Is oh, one. yeah. Right? I mean, and that's the thing, is, like, the design here is how do you reliably open the valve from, from mm -hmm. your bank account into the casino? I, it's really interesting you brought up the crypto thing, which, it, I, yes, is 100% true. I thought you were going to talk about uh, battle passes, which is the same idea. Yes. Um, you know, it's just, it's continuous time on device. It is a mechanism that dribbles out, you know, behavioralist giblets to you <laughs> and you, uh, you know, gun skins or whatever. And it keeps you on the thing. I, I would really encourage people, if you're interested in like getting in understanding the experience of this, of, of continuous gaming productivity as it works in games. Um, Jack, who is who is a big Range Touch community member, does a lot of game streaming and, and is at Hendrix Trog on uh, Twitter, uh, Jack, for every game that comes out that he is interested in that has a battle pass, will max out the battle pass and then writes about what that was like. So it's like purely experimental. And you are clearly not meant to do that. You know, that's it, <laughs> it just requires so many hours that it is uh, like truly, truly a uh, like nightmare to do. It's it's unpleasant to do. Uh, he's he's done it with Apex Legends. He's done it with Fall Guys, which was an interesting experience. Um, and just recently finished the Halo one, which is notoriously uh, Halo Infinite, which is you know notoriously difficult. But uh, mm -hmm. they're really interesting pieces where he writes about what the experience was of. What does it mean to actually per participate on the terms of maximalizing the thing the game theoretically wants you to do? And what becomes really apparent, like I just said, is that you're not really meant to do it. It's just meant to do this. It's meant to generate continuous gaming productivity for you because you paid whatever, 10 bucks for it if, if it's not free to play. And, uh, you know, if it's the Call of Duty one or whatever, and you don't get $10 of value in it, but you need to continue playing in order to feel like this is a thing worth doing next season. And so obviously there's been some augmentation from the gambling industries into the video game industries, but you, you look at these terms and the way they talk about it and it's exactly the same. Um, you know, there's no difference, but, but sorry, I, I'm monologuing again. 
Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I think the battle pass thing is is uh, probably even more relevant than the crypto thing, if only because like battle passes are uh, there's pushback to crypto games. Um, battle passes are just kind of here. <laughs> um, and I think that's worth thinking about. Uh, the other things that happen in this chapter then are just, uh, what are all of the ways that, uh, game designers try to extend, uh, again, time on device, uh, what are the things that do that? And so, uh, to just touch on an example that I already mentioned, um, being able to streamline the, the payment and payout process. Uh, one of the big things that, uh, this book points out again and again is that the switch from a kind of mechanical and analog machines to digital machines uh, has a profound impact on uh, gambling, you know, so once your payouts don't have to come in a whole bunch of quarters that are shooting out of the the little uh, bucket at the bottom. Um, once that gets into like once you get to a point where that's just like uh, credits and that is the word that is used, right? The the other thing that happens here, um, I don't remember if it's in this chapter or in a later one, but uh, uh, like the the amount that you're spending to play and the amount that you're receiving for your wins is obfuscated through a credit system, mm -hmm. uh, much in the way that like, you know, uh, uh I don't like I don't even know what they're called anymore, but um, like your little Nintendo points on, on in the Switch store, right? <laughs> or uh, uh, Chuck E. Cheese points. Yes. Yes, uh, exactly. But yeah, Nintendo points are like uh, uh, the like, I think they're called battle coins in Call of Duty, right? This like funny yeah. money, what you know, mo modes of company script, essentially, <laughs> uh, you know, they exist within these game systems. Right. And so these these things kind of uh, get introduced. Uh, you don't have to like you can have a, a card uh, that you can just swipe so you're not carrying around all your money. Uh, you know, this this increases time on device because you don't have to like figure out what to do with all these quarters when you win or you don't have to go and get uh, as much money from the ATM. And this all increases time on device. Uh, but also these are things like uh, uh, one of these firms designs a chair that allows people to slouch. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't like make them uh, maintain as rigid a posture because that again uh, increases time on device. Uh, where do you put your cup holders for drinks? Uh, how are the lights positioned? Uh, because and I think this is where I, I put this on Twitter because it's just one of the most absurd uh, lines to ever read where it's like uh, lights on the like uh, direct <laughs> light to the forehead was found to drain uh, energy from gamers faster or something. Yeah. And so, like too many blinking yeah. lights do that. There's like a whole system of how your vitality is drained from you. Mm hmm. And yeah, like, I mean, that's that's what this is about. And this is all again called right. This is the language that is used player centric design. So the important thing here, kind of from a rhetorical perspective, is that the the designers in the casinos are all couching this in terms that's like, oh, we're trying to we're doing it because this is what players want. This helps the players. This is good for them because it gives them more of what they want, which is to use these machines. Um, and as kind of the book ne never outright says, but like is a definitely a, a way of thinking you can come away with um, is that this is all just kind of a double speak, right? <laughs> that uh, we say that this is player centric design, but it's it is about how do we center the player better in our sight lines to extract more value from them? Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it's like, wow, and also that all of these, anything that could be, the, the other thing I think is interesting about this chapter is that anything that could be a break point has, since the 1970s, been gamified itself. Mm -hmm. So on page 73, she's talking about how even money withdrawal has been turned into like a little game. 
mm-hmm. to not feel like you're, you know, to not feel like a roped mechanical like thing you're doing. Uh, it, you know, it's a thing. Although it is interesting that later on we find out, maybe it's in the next chapter, we find out that um, for the most hardcore gamblers that any kind of artifice is hated. Mm-hmm. So like it, like they, I, you know, I wrote at some point here uh, that, uh, so, well, I'll wait till we get there. Cause I do know where <laughs> it is. Is this about the monkeys? This is about, well, it's partially about the monkeys. That's so funny okay. to me too. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, we will get there. God, I love those monkeys. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is this is what this chapter is, right? Like, uh, uh, just this is a good, like, kind of like summary quote from Shul on page 74. For extreme machine gamblers, the experience of play is an end in itself, an autotelic zone beyond value as such in that, quote, no other reward than continuing the experience is required to keep it going, unquote. Conversely, for the gambling industry, the zone is a means to an end. Although it carries no value in and of itself, it is possible to derive value from it, unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and throughout, I, I don't think we've said this, but throughout this, we're getting a lot of like Calois, uh, we're getting uh, Max Faber. We're getting, uh, or though maybe Faber comes up next, but we're getting Goffman at one point. Irving Goffman. We're getting Hozinga, right? We, you know, we're seeing these kind of game studies ish arguments uh, getting brought in, and then Shul is very quick to to talk about how the actual practicalities of gaming complicate all of these. That none of these can just be taken as flatly true because of the way that you know when you actually hold it up to the way that gambling works. You know, there, there, there's no magic circle. What are you talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although, as you just said, right, the autotelicness of the activity is held, but it's not autotelicness of extraction more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the she she goes through kind of, you know, here are some game studies people are sort of like uh, uh, cultural studies people who look at kind of like ludic performances like Goffman. Um, and here, here is, here are their ideas. Here is how their ideas are actually inadequate to the way that gambling is happening, uh, right now in the world, right here is, they are inadequate to the way commercialized gambling functions, um, because all of these thinkers, uh, to some degree or another, uh, weirdly enough are about like, so Calois, I already mentioned, like hates gambling and thinks that if you gamble, you're, you know, uh, uh, dissolute way for whatever and uh you're trying to like forego your beautiful existential ability to choose or what have you mm-hmm. right gambling for kawa is all about kind of like uh trying to get something for nothing and in doing so kind of like throwing uh all all of your like rigor to the wind mm-hmm. um and she points out that like well no, not really. That's not why people want to do this, right? In the same way that there is no magic circle and that for uh, Goffman, uh, you know, gambling is about character contests because Goffman is is looking at things like uh, communal gambling, right? People playing uh, roulette around the table together. Uh, and she's like, here, here are form. These are forms of gambling now that we have um, that do not fit these criteria because they are about isolating you. Um, or like you isolating yourself. Uh, so there's no real character contest involved. And uh, it's not sort of about like the the uh, just, you know, disapparition of whatever funds you want to throw into the gambling arena uh, because someone's making money off of that, right? There is an industry that exists around it that this is how it makes its profits is creating situations where you throw your money into the wind. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and this also, uh, unless you have something more to say there, uh, the ties in pretty well in, with chapter three, Programming Chance, the calculation of enchantment. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this returns us to the question of enchantment, which we talked about last month with the Sailor book. Um, and you'll recall that I had kind of some, I guess, persnickety things to say about enchantment and the way that it worked in in, in that argument. Um, here, this this way that uh, enchantment, again, also showing up through uh, Max Weber, uh, this is more to my liking uh, because it shows exactly how uh, the re-enchantment process um, is very often a, uh, not, I want to say it's a smokescreen, but um, yeah, let's say it's a smokescreen. The process of re-enchantment is very often a smokescreen for someone trying to get something over on you. Uh-oh. Right? Um, so for Sir Ve for Weber, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he's he's like, well, we're I was joking. This I was joking about that hateration before, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no, no. I think that mm -hmm. this is I, I'm not really like haterizing on on Shul's book here. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm just saying, like, I think that this is a more accurate way of like looking at how enchantment um, operates, particularly within contemporary capitalism. Yeah, you're haterating on Max Weber <laughs> <laughs> uh, where he's like, OK, so, uh, you know, we've rationalized the world like science has displaced mythology or religion or whatever. So we can no longer look out at the world and see like the book of God where all of these kind of like mystical things are happening behind the scenes um, because we know it's all just like uh, rote mechanical, like brute materialism uh, and processes and things like that. Uh, and so one of the things that then happens is that, uh, we have re like the, the idea of re-enchantment here for this chapter becomes one of, and this is a quote from page 78, re-enchantment is a process of purposive, uh, purposive obfuscation. So if disenchantment is where you can look at the system and you see how the system works, you see how all of the pieces fit together, uh, re-enchantment then is about like, uh, purposefully obfuscating certain aspects of the system uh, to provide a sort of more mystical relationship. Um, and like the big example here, and this is also a really cool chapter because we get kind of like the history of like the slot machine as an object. Like mm -hmm. how the hell did this thing get invented and where does it come from? And we learn some cool trivia. Like, have you ever wondered why slot machines have all of those like fruit things on them? Uh, it's because uh, back when slot machines were first invented and they were extremely illegal everywhere, they were often disguised as gum vending machines. <laughs> so that's where that comes from. Anyway. In a mechanical slot machine, uh, you would have a, a problem called a near miss or not a problem, really. Um, but uh, when the reels spin around, so you get, you know, your uh, uh, let's say like banana, banana. Uh, and then the next one is like grape. But <laughs> on the reel that spun, you can see that, uh, you know, you got your grape on the third try, but the banana was just below or just above it, right? That's a near miss. If I had just been like a half second quicker uh, or like waited just a half second more, I could have gotten all three bananas and then I would have had my, you know, banana jackpot. Um, uh, that uh, is a thing that is sort of true when you're working with a mechanical slot machine the other thing about mechanical slot machines that it comes up that's really funny is that like people could cheat them in all sorts of ways like when when these things are real moving parts you can like uh mess around with them and like shake the machines in order to get certain outcomes um when this all goes to digital 
and all of this stuff is being projected onto a screen, obviously you're not going to uh, get as much um, futzing with it by people like shaking it and so on. Um, but here's the other thing is that when the representation on the screen uh, is just an output of some sort of digital process going on inside the, the machine itself, um, you can program uh, the visualizations of the slots in such a way to say, uh, make it look like there are more near misses than there actually are, uh, because the, the calculation is now happening so fast, there is just a random number generator running inside of a slot machine that is going no matter uh, whether or not anyone is interacting with it. Mm -hmm. uh, like it is firing constantly. And so by the like the second you press the button, the machine knows whether or not you have won. Um, and then it's just an issue of like, how does it represent this information to you? How does uh, sort of the visualization work? And uh, sort of the psychological effect of near misses is that like, oh, damn, I was so close, I should do it again, mm -hmm. right? If I'm just faster next time, I can do it again. Uh, and like, surprise, you move into digital machines and uh, the gambling industry comes up with all sorts of ways to program for these things like near misses, uh, even though they are totally like... Uh, like they're unnecessary, right? They are, they, they, the, the industry, the designers use, uh, the aesthetics of older machines, uh, for the kind of cognitive effects, even though they have nothing to do with the actual operations of the machines sort of in and of themselves as they currently exist. And so they're the process of re-enchantment then, uh, becomes about taking this digital technology and making it feel as if it's more like an older analog or mechanical technology and that you have a more uh, straightforward and less obfuscated relationship with it uh, than you actually do. Yeah, the and then there's the additional layer. So like she lays all that out and then she says, uh, yeah, the what what is going to show up on that machine is determined immediately, as you're saying, by this like RNG. Uh, and then in order to make you feel even to generate even more of that almost got it effect, they added more interactive elements so you can stop each reel individually by like hitting the button or whatever. But when you choose to stop, that button has no bearing on what is there. Mm -hmm. It is, it is purely arbitrary because that, that what is going to be there has already been determined before. And it's, so it's only there to make you feel like you interacted with the, with an already predetermined outcome and to feel like, Oh, if I only did better next time, it makes a game of chance feel like a game of skill which is, in fact, you know, a huge part of the history of the relationship between gambling and games, right? That's the whole mm -hmm. uh, pinball history, right? And, and pinball legislation has to do with, is pinball a game of skill or a game of chance? If pinball is a game of skill, then it is legislated differently than gambling, which is a game of chance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can, you, and you, you can read about the history of arcades to kind of see how that, that uh, worked out. Um, and I guess that freed up around the same time. That's the 1960s, 1970s, I think. I'm not, not mm -hmm. an expert on this. I would need to look it up more. But it is interesting uh, to think about those two kind of parallels and how, how clear it is here, right? They don't, they're not pretending they're not a game of chance. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, even when you have things that are more highly interactive that make it look like you can affect the outcome in a serious way. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, it's like uh, holding down the B button when the, uh, the Pokemon ball mm -hmm. you know catches mm -hmm. catches the the critter hey everybody uh here we are in the middle of the episode with an ad break ad bre i'm blinking a uh a blinking right light right into your eyeballs but not on your forehead uh, 
into mine or to the listeners? Both. Okay. <laughs> Either I. You're looking mm-hmm. in two directions. Yep. Uh, uh, we are here in the middle of the episode for this ad break to let you know that if you like the work that we are doing here with Game Study Study Buddies, if you like uh, listening to us month after month, kind of pick through these academic books and talk about, uh, you know, what we like about them, what we think is interesting about them, what is useful about them uh, for people who want to think about games critically and in a much broader sense, uh, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash ranged touch uh we are fully listener supported we have uh no other kind of advertising going on um everything that we do is supported by you and if you uh give us i think it's the three dollar tier uh you will get the notes that cameron and i take for each episode we we take our respective reading notes um and then uh i put them together into a pdf and there's uh if you give us the money on patreon you'll get access to a a drive where all of our notes are up and you can take a look at them and see kind of like lots of stuff that we don't have time to talk about in the episodes or or sort of like other thoughts that we have if you want to see me like really go off on a tear about something from the 16th century i often do that in my notes um uh, but there are other things that you can uh, get from the Patreon if you're in sort of a, a more recreational mood a little bit more. I'll get you like bonus content for just King things. Our show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order as well as the bonus episodes for Homestuck Made This World. Um, any amount of money also gets you an additional monthly podcast with Cameron and Danny and uh, I guess at least sometimes me at least one time me mm-hmm. uh, maybe more me in the future uh, and uh, you know the other thing I guess you can do is is tell people about us uh tell people about this show if you think that uh there's an episode that we've done that will really speak to someone let them know and you can let the entire internet know your thoughts by leaving us a review on a podcast platform of your choice uh and are we going to make the same offer here that we've made in other places yeah sure yeah uh if you if you leave us a a five-star review uh there is a chance that this is our this is our little gambling machine uh there's a chance if you leave a five-star review uh that cameron will uh look through all of our five-star reviews and then find yours and read it out loud on the show right now during an ad break uh i'm gonna do it right now (laughs) uh hold on do 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 uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very complimentary. Thanks so much to Midas133. Uh, this is from actually very recently. Title, Great Podcast. Uh, line, Great Podcast. Sometimes I can even follow what is being discussed. Winky face. That's <laughs> 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 uh, very good. And then, the, and then they go on to be very complimentary. I, I, I don't, I don't want to read just a long compliment about myself. But uh, very, very good. And uh, if you leave a five-star review, I might read a review from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, here's another one, also from very recently. Actually, from a couple days ago, in fact. From CE998, like a good lecture, except it's also a conversation between friends. Truly, what is a podcast, if not a lecture you can listen to while doing the dishes? For real, <laughs> though, I appreciate how rigorous the readings are and the approach to the readings. Always great to hear from people who really know their stuff. Thanks so much to CE998. If you would like to me to read your review, it is interesting that many of our other reviews for the other shows are uh, people are trying to be funny because mm-hmm. uh, they're, you know, different in tone. Uh, and so uh, you don't have to be funny. These Neither of these are particularly funny, although I do like Winky Face. They're just mm-hmm. complimentary, and I appreciate that. But you can also be funny, and I will, uh, you know, feel free to do whatever you would like. But thanks to everyone who has left a five-star review so far. We've got 115 ratings, and we've got a 5.5 
or 5.0 out of 5. <laughs> I was like, wow, we got five damn. Point. We took some review AP credits and really bumped that up. But uh, but we've got a five-star a five star rating, and that's, like, awesome. That means that people see what we're up to, and uh, we don't spend any money on advertising. So uh, thanks so much for doing that. If you really like the show, send it to someone. Um, if you've got friends who are, like, maybe interested in the mechanics of the gambling industry and, like, what's going on here, I think this is probably a pretty cool show uh, to send to them. And, uh, yeah, email it away. Or, uh, I don't know, hoot and holler out the window about it. <laughs> Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and I guess we'll let you get back to the show. Right. Or hello. Yeah, um, the one of the uh, industry people gets quoted as uh, saying, like, you know, people call the RNG the really new god. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's a, um, uh, there's like a way in which uh it's determining everything uh but everyone has these like obscure relationships to it uh it, the one thing the designer says that uh, people act like it's casting a spell which is a problem that comes up throughout this book is like uh people uh who approaching gambling machines as if the machines are deliberative rather than kind of you know automatic um uh, and i put in my notes let's talk about the root of boxley <laughs> mm-hmm because uh what's a, are you what's familiar? a rude a rude ah oh, damn Cameron. it's like a cross or something yes it is okay I got um it. Phew. Th- yeah. thankfully i took that class on chaucer <laughs> i thought i thought so, that's what it was but we can just make sure okay yeah uh and this is just you know to, to like touch on again i think uh something i said i stuff i talked about in kind of the sailor episode um because for me these questions of like enchantment disenchantment have to do with um what was the role played in played by religion in in previous uh eras and how has that been increasingly sort of subsumed under capitalist models of extraction mm-hmm. um Boxley is an abbey that is in, I think, Kent in England. Um, And during the Protestant Reformation, after Henry VIII uh, broke with the Catholic Church, very famously, one of the things that happened is that uh, um, they were like, well, okay, we're Protestant now. And so uh, all of the uh, sort of statuary and um, like uh, decoration of Catholic uh, cathedrals um and chapels and churches right uh uh, murals on the walls uh all of this is sensuousness that uh the catholic church is using to uh distract us from the true core of christianity which is about like you know your personal relationship with god as mediated by your reading of the bible and um your relationship with your local parish um so one of the things that happens is they go through and they strip the altars and they break all of the statues they like paint over the murals and uh in boxley there was a uh particular uh crucifix um a rood uh the rood of boxley that had a uh jesus on it right it was a big uh crucifix with like a, a statue of christ on it um the uh jesus statue on it was uh, an automaton it could be moved right it would move its head it would blink its eyes um i think by some accounts it would uh on certain days they could make it like bleed um it was a puppet essentially right and sort of one of the famous things that happened during the protestant reformation uh is that they pull down the rood and uh they like parade it through town and they show everyone the back of it and they're like here's here's where you know the priest was back there pulling the strings making you believe uh here's how all this works and then they destroy it publicly um and the 
and this is like you know primo protestantism right this is this is like it's a right like this is hatred of puppetry (laughs) well yes right it's it's the hatred of of performance the hatred of um what they see as this uh uh mystifying relationship that leaves people in a stupor right you're not reading the bible and coming to your own kind of personal apprehension of god uh you're being literally like misled by a puppet show Mm -hmm. so uh, that's kind of the Protestant argument on it. Now, historically, this gets more complicated uh, because there is some evidence uh, that like people in the church knew that the thing was a puppet. They didn't think that that was a miracle. They just thought it was really cool. And in fact, like it being a sort of like sign of like, you know, uh, God's grace or like something that put them in communion with, uh, uh, you know, the, the parishioners, like put them in communion with whatever it was that they thought about God, uh, that that was not, in fact, opposed to it being a, an automaton or a kind of mechanical device uh, that, in fact, they could have that religious experience while knowing that it was uh, sort of a little puppet show for them. Right. Um, and this shows up throughout this book in a couple of places. There's this one designer who talks about how uh, when he plays his own machines, he said he says, like, quite specifically, I have to delude myself. I have to pretend that I don't know the things that I know uh, in order to get the experience that I want. Um, and so I think there's something here about, uh, again, like uh, belief and how belief is not this like sort of simple on off switch in people that, in fact, we we can actively choose to believe or disbelieve things in in certain ways that uh, fit with like, you know, ideology or, or material circumstance or what have you. Um, so mm-hmm. that's just something I want to pull out here about enchantment and uh, I guess slot machines and puppet crucifixes. Mm hmm. And, you know, that makes me think, actually, kind of going back a little bit, um, it makes me think a lot about the uh, kind of spectacular claim of, you know, someone is is falling down, they're having a heart attack, and then people are just, like, caught up in their gambling machines so much that they don't care about it, mm-hmm. um, and which which kind of ignores the the other maybe broader social context, which is that people have awful things happen to them all the time, and people just don't pay attention to it. Right, like anyone who's ever ridden on the subway of anywhere for any amount of time has seen someone do something awful or something bad happen to someone, and the majority of people just not care about it uh, and mm-hmm. actively look away or whatever. I the other day saw two people whip their shirt off and start fighting in the street, and no one did anything about it. I saw that I saw this occur, and people just drove right by. Uh, right, and so there there's something going on here too around what I would say is like a uh there there is a broader set of social circumstances where uh in the latter half of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century as a american society we're pretty good at selectively caring about stuff mm-hmm. and so you know that fuels part of the interaction with the machine with getting in the machine zone is just like arbitrarily blocking and bracketing things out and then just getting into it, which we're pretty good at all the time. And if you've ever done any kind of manual labor or you've ever done any kind of like uh, factory labor, you might empathize with because doing those jobs also requires you just to kind of like block some stuff out and do the thing in front of you um, and kind of turn into a little bit of an automaton. And so in in some ways, I I think that um, this kind of uh, knowing enchantment, right, um, of Mm -hmm. bringing you in, there's a willful suspension of the rest of the world. And that gets talked about in a lot of different ways across this book, but I think this is a particular, you know, example of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, related there's this line from a gambling commission so these uh this near miss issue 
um, that I talked about uh, becomes kind of fraught uh, because uh, sort of in old style machines, uh, they, there was actually legislation against having machines that produced near misses or like produced mm. too many or, or produced misleading near misses. Um, and then here, when the kind of like digital turn happens, we get a quote from a gambling commissioner who is reviewing uh, these a, a new type of uh, <laughs> like gambling screen that would produce like an, an inordinate number of near misses. And he signs off on it. Um, he says uh, or he says that people uh, players expect uh, to be to be deceived by these machines. Therefore, it's not a problem if the machine is deceptive. Uh, and this is a direct quote. I feel good about this machine. I am going to vote in favor of it. I think the concept is an exciting one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying this all the time, by the way, about many mm -hmm. things. <laughs> I feel good about this machine. Mm hmm. I do like this quote at the very end from uh, from one of the gamblers where uh, where I think it's she she says reason just skippity hops out the door. Mm -hmm. I love reason uh, skippity hopping when it does it. <laughs> I think that if you could characterize one thing that's critical to game studies, it's that reason uh, not as a field, but like the you know the way that humans interact with games. Uh, that often reason just skippity hops out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that's kind of it here, right? So, you know, this, yeah. this chapter has, or the section of design has been about, uh, how, how are, uh, casinos made, how are gambling mm -hmm. machines made? And then how are like the operations that make those machines work? How are they made? And if, I mean, for all of these and for the whole rest of this book, the level of detail here is overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. you know, very readable, but in the sense of like, if you really want to know, if you want to see the, uh, the patented diagram for how they increase odds while decreasing payout, you can see that because that's in the mm -hmm. book and it's analyzed and talked about, you know, we're, we're kind of giving you the overview here, the big, big idea, but this, uh, particularly these chapters get very fine grain detail, um, mm -hmm. in really interesting ways. But, uh, I think that will put us in line for part two feedback which mm -hmm. is broadly, I would say, part two is about like, how does the industry change in response to how its players interact with it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's a the, the little vignette at the start of this is some uh, like descriptions of people talk on a, a gambling, like a recovering gambling addict forum, uh, trying to figure out, you know, like people saying like, I don't understand why this is happening to me. Like, I don't understand it. this. I, why can't I control myself? And someone else comes in and says like, well, when I was in school, you, or, you know, you probably heard about this in school, like BF Skinner and his behavioralist experiments, um, with, uh, reinforcement, uh, in the, in the Skinner boxes with rats, uh, and basically says, you know, that's us. Like we're the rats. Uh, we, we, we get put into these boxes and we press buttons and we get rewards for them. And the rewards are intermittent enough that it, uh, just absolutely drives us wild. Um, and so for example, the, the chapter that sort of starts us off here, uh, for matching the market innovation, intensification, and habituation, uh, talks about this innovation of an Australian gambling company. In fact, Austra um, I learned from this book, Australians love to gamble. Yeah, this was not really a thing that I knew, but there's like a, a big sort of gambling industry in Australia to the extent that like this, I think it's called aristocrat is like one of the most innovative. Mm -hmm. uh, I say that in the scariest voice possible, um, innovative uh, gambling uh, machine designers out there because they introduced this thing uh, like multi-line slots where uh, and I ended up uh, looking up uh 
footage of slot machines for this episode just to get a sense for how these things looked. Yeah, you sent me um, a video of what I could only call like the unboxing style <laughs> of video, but for hacking uh, Vegas machines. Yeah, it's oh my god, it's some of the uh, oh, it's it's oh, it, it made <laughs> me feel weird, like the whole thing. Um, cause like, do you know, surprise everyone, uh, there are people on YouTube who have entire channels dedicated to running hacked, uh, slot machine software that is just constantly dispensing wins. Um, and some of these people actually have the machines. And so the one that I sent you actually had the machine. Uh, and there's like, we get the whole, like the camera like moves up and down the body of the machine. You get to see all of the lights at the top, all the buttons at the bottom. There's a real, like, a t- like, It is a view, right? Like Mm -hmm. the camera has a view of this machine. And then we watch the screen and um, it's like these uh, four to six uh, reels that are spinning on one side and maybe like four other reels that are slightly longer on the other side. Uh, And it it looks like Bejeweled, right? The, the, Mm -hmm. the graphical design looks like Bejeweled, like all of these like little diamonds and things, um, little uh, graphics that are lining up uh and uh the multi-line slots rather than just winning right if you get everything in the middle uh you can get like bejeweled uh like you can get winning combinations that move diagonally or that like move diagonally and then pivot back up that are moving in like a V shape. Um, And because you have so many things that are spinning, uh, you can get more frequent rewards. Like the, the wins become more frequent. Um, But then of course the, the math uh, behind the scenes here is that the wins are all smaller. And of course, uh, as in every case with these machines, um, the, the frequency and the size of your wins are never going to surpass the amount that you're actually putting into the machine, right? The house is always winning. Uh, and it turns out when these machines that can uh, put out a bunch more rewards much more frequently, uh, even if they are uh, doing that, Um, They are actually taking more money overall because it extends time on device. Uh, One of the designers here says, and this is a direct quote, some people like to be bled slowly. Um, They also call this type of play of uh, sitting down, like there's two types of play, right? There are people, there are in fact people who play slot machines for jackpots, right? Let us not Mm -hmm. forget that, that there are people who just like want to win a bunch of money and like leave. Um, But uh, for problem gamblers, uh these these people adopt a play style that the designers call uh anyone out there in game studies land let me know if this sounds familiar a grind yep yep there's also churn uh-huh <laughs> right which which is uh, the description of people uh, both people and profit leaving i think right that shows mm-hmm. up later in the book but yeah there uh, basically every single term that has entered into Game studies from like mass phenomena, you know, like people really playing in big numbers that and then we've kind of developed design terms around it or things that entered into the industry around um, the advent of mobile gaming. Seems Mm -hmm. like every single one of those terms came out of gambling, the gambling industries. Yep, (laughs) it does seem like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the sort of big point of this chapter 
um, aside from uh, all the all the sort of like factual information I just described, one, the the argument that Shul makes is that uh, this is all intensification of the basic slot machine paradigm, and this intensification destabilizes the tolerance of gambling addicts. Right? There, there, like there are gambling addicts uh, who get uh, interviewed here who sort of talk about like how they get to a point where it's like they might actually just stop playing because they're not getting the feeling anymore, and then a sort of more complicated, convoluted gambling machine is put out. Out and they're right back in it because yeah. it, it does all the things, but uh, to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, and and uh, just to talk about the trajectory really quickly here, right? So before the Australian uh, gambling innovations, quote unquote, emerge, uh, what she's tracing at the beginning of this chapter is the emergence of video poker. Um, mm -hmm. which you uh, probably, if you've ever been to a gas station in the United States, you've probably seen some version of, um, you know, so it's the idea of it deals you a hand, you, cho you choose which to hold and which not to hold, and then you uh, then it deals you more cards, and then based on patterns in that four of a kind, flush, whatever, uh, you win prizes. And so there's this um, uh, capability for, it's that the thing we were talking about before, right? Interaction. And mm -hmm. player agency, uh, you know, the, the, she's not using that word, but that is exactly what's happening here, right? This fantasy of player agency uh, that I can make rational choices about the things that I'm doing. I can make choices, period, that, that have to do with the outcome here, that those, uh, those seem to matter a lot. Um, video poker goes in the 1980s, uh, as soon as it's interest, uh, introduced, people start really liking it. And then it becomes the predominant game that most people who are problem gamblers or at least regular gamblers, uh, actually are involved with. So like mm -hmm. once it comes out, it eclipses the slot machine as a thing that people mm -hmm. are particularly interested in. And as you're talking about now, companies have basically innovated the slot machine with ideas from, video poker which is just like more you know playing this bejeweled style game or like pattern matching the australian game that i thought was really interesting that that, that she talked about is the one that has you like draw the line across the board to like mm -hmm. create your own matching pattern out of the big uh you know kind of uh board basically that you get mm -hmm. um but but the thing that's really the kind of payoff for all of this is a, a thing called ldws losses disguised as wins Mm -hmm. and and this is this is just another way of talking about what you've just talked about michael which is that uh, it bleeds you slowly because it gives you smaller payouts all the time but that's the thing is that you create more bets that are smaller bets but have smaller payouts and it feels like you are consistently winning but you are consistently losing money even though you are winning because the mm -hmm. bet you know over the course of three or four hands or whatever you know pulls over the course of three or four you are still losing uh, your money, you know, there is a something that's really interesting uh, toward the end of the book that's talking about a 90% replacement rate for each bet. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. It's basically for each bet you make, you only lose 10% of your money. And uh -huh. people look at that and they think that that means in aggregate. So if I sit down with $100, I will leave with $90. Mm. But, the, but the machines are not clear. None of the, the information that's given to players is not clear that that's over like both, I think, an infinite time frame. And also it is per bet, not in aggregate. Um, mm -hmm. And so due to the fluctuations on the thing, you can actually end up losing quite a bit more than that, even though statistically over, you know, whatever, 15 million plays, 
um, that might end up to be that way. If you win the jackpot and you lose 10,000 times, those will equal out to only losing (laughs) 10% of your earnings. Right. Yeah. Uh, But that's not the case for the vast majority of of players. And so there's, there's something really interesting to me here about the way that the, the major innovations that have been made since the 1980s in, um, in, in gambling machines, you know, not live play, but gambling machines have involved increased options for players Mm-hmm. And in, and that those options do not actually allow for a skill based getting one over on on the machine. Mm-hmm. The, the machine is offering you false opportunities for agency or false opportunities for skill based interaction. I would say that this also is just video games. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> to the extent where I mean, you know, for the, for some scholars, this is the definition of video games, right? The idea that one mm-hmm. would lose over and over and over again until one wins uh, after a certain skill-based accomplishment. And, you know, within the only difference is that the skill-based accomplishment is an absolute fiction and everyone knows it in the gambling machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I sent you this message, but, you know, just this absolutely radicalized me against loot boxes, Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a never again, <laughs> you know, at this point, because it's all of these same mechanisms, right? Like it is increasing time on machine. It is trickling out rewards in very particular ways and it is creating conditions under which if you want to complete your collection or your number of skins or whatever you want to do, you are ultimately going to have to pay in way more money than you would get out from actually just playing the thing. Um, so the the inputs and outputs look quite a, a bit different, right? The inputs being predominantly time and then occasionally a big chunk of money. And the outputs are just aesthetic for the most part uh, in the video games. But the system schematically is exactly the same. It's just the way that money moves is a little bit different. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, much more tragically, money never moves out in the in mm-hmm. the video game system, right? This is, again, the kind of play play to earn uh you know nonsense that's being sold by some people it's the fantasy that the money could come out um Mm -hmm. ignoring the fact that the entirety of the crypto economy is based on extracting money through fees or through services or through exchanges and um that unless you are highly invested that that is a loss uh, a a losing system it it looks a lot like gambling from the perspective of the shul book Mm -hmm. systemically again but um Oh, one one other thing I wanted to say here. I love I loved here at the end. It's on 126. A nickel game, this is a quotation. A nickel game isn't a nickel game when you're betting 90 nickels at a time. Mm-hmm. I think that's from a designer. Yep. And I, like that's, uh, you know, welcome to free-to-play games. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, free-to-play games are also all over this book. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, the, the, the mobile game industry is entirely parasitic to the gambling industry industry yep. i just think that's true at this point uh, I, the aesthetics i mean i didn't mention bejeweled for no reason earlier yeah. right the aesthetics are the same yes like, like they have the same type of art style like all of these uh slot machines that i was looking up like have that i don't even know how to like that mobile game style art where it's like uh uh you know what if a a dreamworks or a pixar uh <laughs> movie was made by uh 
someone who knew how to drink or something. I don't know how to just like, there, there's like a little, there's always like a little bit of an adult cast to it. I know mm-hmm. the one that I sent you have, it was called, wait, hold on. What was it called? I, I actually, I don't even want to say this on air because I don't want to give pe- these people like attention, mm-hmm. but the title was so fucking funny. It did have a, a, a goofy thing. Well, I mean, this is something that we've also learned from Shira Chess's book. You know, if we go back and think about that episode that, mm-hmm. you know, the aesthetics are about appealing to a very particular demographic. Um, which is like women with free time, adult women mm-hmm. with free time, you know, that that in the interviews that Shira Chess is doing in that book, talking to designers, that's what they're saying straight out. And that's who is I mean, it's a slightly old, older uh, group of women, but it seems mm-hmm. like that is a uh, the demographic that the gambling machines are after here is mm-hmm. is women uh, older women with a slightly disposable income or even mm-hmm. if it's not disposable, they don't care. But that's who they're geared toward. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that, um, whatever the perspective of the designers, whether that demographic really likes these things or not, that that perspective and that, that, uh, the assumptions about that group would be made similar, similarly across, um, industries. So mm-hmm. it was called Colossal Wizards. <laughs> That's the name of the slot machine. And like the, the, the key art is like a, a boy wizard and a girl wizard. Uh, and the boy wizard is like an ice wizard. And he's, he looks like the ice King actually from game game of Thrones, except he's sexy. He's got like pecs and abs. Wait, hold on. You're saying the ice King's um, not sexy. Uh, well, he, he looks less like a zombie warlord, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Right. Like he's clearly intended to be attractive. And the, uh, the, the lady is a fire wizard and she's got like a, you know, little crop top and exposed midriff and things like that. So that's what I mean is like, there's, this mm-hmm. is not explicit, but there's something lightly horny about it, mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> which is big mobile game vibes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to, we are in, that's the thing is like, if you read this book, we are toning it down on our, <laughs> on our uh, drawing of connections between these industries. It is mm-hmm. uh, really the thing. And that actually kind of leads us into the next chapter here, chapter five, live data tracking players guiding play, because it begins with a, uh, a description of Randy Adams, the slot king, uh, <laughs> and like everything that everyone says about him. And one of the things is, is that he can like get inside the mind of a 50 year old grandmother. Mm hmm. You know, like that he's he's like the adult woman whisperer uh, yes. when it comes to slot king um, or, you know, slot machine creation. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is also where we get a uh, gardener grout. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote in my notes. This is a friends at the table ass name. Yeah. Uh, he's gardener grout. Uh, he's gardener grout of Silicon gaming, too. There's yeah. like a like a little bit of a thing. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the book, there's a little bit of a uh, where are they now? You know, because mm-hmm. the research of this book, you know, happened over 10, 15 years. And we're not going to talk about all of them. But Gardner Grout got so stressed out about working in the industry that that uh, he left. He stopped working in the gambling industry and went to work in the toy industry. Yeah. So He's, tells you. he was the one who said that uh, when he plays when he plays a slot machine, he has to delude himself into mm-hmm. not knowing what he knows about how they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gardner Grout shows up a lot. And he lives on a space station, and he uh, is the connect for the party when they need to buy uh, living palm trees or something. <laughs> um, yeah, so this this chapter, you, it, it starts with, like, these descriptions of, uh, well, as you said, of Randy Adams, um, and sort of about how he was really, like, hit that type of guy, 
he in particular, I think he's kind of like the guy of guys in this sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this type of guy was someone you wanted on hand for your casino who could like walk through and see people and be like, that person's having a good time. That person's having a bad time. Uh, This room needs to be changed in this way for people to to like it more. Um, Kind of, you know, you know, I'm an empath, me, an empath. Here's how you improve your casino. Um, it's about that guy and how that that there's some sort of success there, obviously, but also the industry is changing so that this sort of guy is less and less important, um, that we are seeing a shift in sort of casino administration toward uh, more data driven uh, uh, insights let's call them uh uh people want something that is more quote unquote scientific so we get this quote from sort of an up-and-comer guy who's talking about how like oh yeah no we like take all this data and we like run it through these machines and find you know this that or the other behavior um and then this moves into a discussion of basically you know how how have casinos innovated right uh come kind of to the front of a lot of uh data collection tracking and uh analysis uh behavior that we associate now with things like what's going on with your smartphone or um, more pointedly uh, your rewards card at the local grocery store uh, you know who who knows about your uh, purchasing habits and uh, who, who what sort of advertisers is that being sold to uh, what's really wild about this is that I'm sure I'm one, I'm sure casinos are selling uh, their user data too, right? I'm sure they're profit, profiting off it in that way. Um, but the thing that gets really wild is like the casinos themselves use it to the extent that they are like tracking uh, people like, uh, you know, here's a person who normally comes in every other week. Uh, he hasn't been in in three weeks and here's how much money we normally expect to make from him. We should get him back in like it comes up in the system. Like let's send him a mailer. Right. Mm -hmm. Like like send him literally a physical card in the mail telling him like, hey, it's been a while since you've been in. Why not come by and bring your, you know, like Mirage loyalty card or whatever the hell. Um, And this also ties in with uh, like a new sort of reward system of uh, the the delightfully named luck ambassadors. (laughs) Yeah, for Uh, sure. That's from the Harris Casino, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So this like the card and tracking system got first introduced into casino at uh, Harrah's in Atlantic City in 1985. And they also came up with this luck ambassador program, um, which started out as just people who sort of walked around the floors and looked for like, oh, this person looks like looks distressed, looks like they're having a bad time or like they I've watched them for a while. I've seen them kind of lo- have some big losses in the past you know half hour um and then you as the luck ambassador come over and you're like hey uh thanks for being at this casino here's you know a coupon for a free steak dinner in our restaurant like you know why don't you treat yourself Mm -hmm. um uh the then this kind of gets uh metamorphosed uh in like sort of the past i don't know 10 years or so where before luck amb so the other thing we learned we actually learned this in the next chapter is that uh, a lot of gamblers hated these luck ambassadors (laughs) (laughs) because Um, they interrupted them and they made them like fill out forms and shit yes um So uh, what happens then is that the luck ambassadors now have like little uh, tablets with them um, that are tracking everyone on the floor who has their card and like 
is giving real-time feedback as to how each person is doing. And you get some screenshots of this, and it looks like a tycoon sim game. Like, you <laughs> yeah. click on a little machine, and it pulls up a profile, and it's like a little grainy black and white picture of the person who's there. And it shows, and it's, you know, it's like Roller Coaster Tycoon. You read it, and you expect them to be saying, like, I want some cotton candy. I want to go home, and that sort of thing. Um, but it's like, you know, how much the person has been winning and losing over the past however long, and it gives you a kind of calculated score as to whether or not this person might need a luck ambassador intervention. Yeah, the uh, I really wanted to make one for you. I was gonna. For, I ran out me? of time. Yeah, but I wanted to like <laughs> scan scan the little image in and then make uh -huh. one uh, make one for you and then and uh, show it to you right now. But I didn't have time <laughs> because they uh, have a little and, and like the face modulates with like all kinds of different. Like if they're losing. Mm -hmm. It's like the eyes go get wider or smaller based on if they're losing or not and how long they've been there. The face changes, too. Mm -hmm. And so you can just look at the image and it tells you all kinds of stuff. Oh. You don't even have to, like, look at a breakdown. Yeah, I was going to say, to be clear, uh, so there's, like, there's, like, an ID image, right, of the mm -hmm. actual person. And then there's, like, a little, like, face image, right, that can be either, like, happy, neutral, or upset. And that's mm -hmm. the thing that, like, that's the one that changes to show, like, their overall mood indicator. Mm-hmm um uh some other i mean that's kind of what this whole chapter is doing is just kind of playing this thing out there's some really interesting stuff here that go goes along with um how play i mean obviously it's in in the subtitle here guiding play but the casinos have recognized recently or or you know recently in the sense of the turn of the 20th century or turn of the 21st century that uh the more options you give to players uh you know you get, end up with decision paralysis so you, but you can give people options up to a certain point to allow them to say design their own games or create uh, like win loss conditions within the games, and that again feeds them this feeling of control here, um, while also severely delimiting actually in the practical sense what the actual outcomes are. Um, again, that felt really similar to me, uh, uh, you know, around discussions of player freedom in games. Mm -hmm. um, right, you you set up a very delimited finite system of outputs and you give just enough inputs that players can have to really make them feel like it makes a difference but you know they get funneled into um a b or c uh, even if their uh, you know uh their initial thing was r through z right mm -hmm. so there's something really interesting going on there and again you know for in the the in video games sometimes the output is money there but oftentimes it's just like player experience you know how do you mm -hmm. do these things and how do you do it within like a reasonable development time um but for the the output for this is like getting people to pay you money right and getting people mm -hmm. to to lose um the amount of money that they have and so it's really interesting how the different incentives are uh i guess present on the industry side um yeah and then they want to go everywhere right mm -hmm. so so like there's a pitch here for you marked it out that uh they're mobile mobile casinos basically on your phone yeah they would love they would love for it to be legal for you to have like a casino app on your phone where you can just always be partly in the casino mm-hmm um we also Thankfully, get uh, uh, candy crush exists so you don't have to yeah <laughs> uh relatedly this is another quote from a a, a designer um who says uh you know uh the the player can this is about the controls issue that you were just talking about the player can now better tell you how to market to him he has mm -hmm. complete control uh you know this is also just to you know to point it out this is like how uh like 
the algorithmic timeline of any given thing works, right? This is how Instagram works. This is how Instagram ads, uh, this is how Instagram decides how to show you ads based on things that you've liked or saved or interacted with uh, that weights you toward uh, certain things that you might be more marketable for. Yeah, so. and that's also how like app design works. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the next feature that comes around is not like based on, hey, I would like to have this feature. It, it is largely based on what what are the wheels of uh, human interaction doing alongside a hefty, uh, you know, grain of politics. I, I don't think that the vast majority of Twitter's millions of users wanted to have the ability to have NFT icons, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we always have to be, be very careful. And Shul is very careful in this book to say, um, corporations will often make very political and forced choices, you know, onto players and then say, hey, that's just what the, the data said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, when, when you see a feature that emerges to solidify something in the world and to uh, to foist something on people in the world, I think you can think about the casino there quite mm -hmm. often. Uh, people want to have more choice. And so we gave them much more complicated gambling machines so they could have more choice. Mm -hmm. Well, do they really want to have more choice or not? And then Shoal kind of digs into the psychological research occasionally here to kind of put pressure on the claims of the industry. I, you know, I think this book is really good at doing that, at saying, here's what they're talking about. Here's what they say out in the open. Here's how they act in order to accomplish those goals. Here's what other people have to say about this that proves that this is absolute horseshit that they're just telling to each <laughs> other um, to extract more money from people. Um, you know, so much of this book's uh, uh, informational apparatus is coming out of industry conferences and panels, particularly in the back half of the book, which we are moving our way toward. Mm -hmm. uh, chapter six, perfect contingency from control to compulsion. Uh, basically, well, I mean, we've been very good about this so far. We haven't said it once. This is the chapter that talks about flow. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, you can go back and listen to our, our episode on flow. Uh, the idea from uh, uh, Chiximahai about uh optimal experience and how do you design objects that result in optimal experiences that uh induce what he calls a flow state which uh surprise sounds an awful lot like the machine zone that gamblers talk about this mm -hmm. state where uh you can kind of just keep going right like you're you're not too uh challenged uh but also like still interested you still want to like hit the button and see how the numbers line up um now, in uh, Chiximahai's uh, sort of his outline of flow, right, he uh, actively discounts gam gambling as a flow activity because uh, it's not basically right. Uh, it's not fancy enough. Like it, it is it is not uh, self. It is not like enriching or fulfilling in the way that <laughs> playing chess or neurosurgery is. Um, and uh, uh, Shul points this out. She calls it his his existentialist outlook. Um, and he does like, you know, to his like minimal credit, uh, say that gambling addiction is a kind of example of how flow could be misused. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that, that there could be ways that flow gets channeled in, into uh, bad zones. 
Um, and she says, like, you know, this is true, but because of his existentialist outlook where everything is kind of always about the individual. And again, go back and listen to that episode if you are unfamiliar or have questions, because we touch on this a lot. Everything is about sort of like the individual actor and sort of this mm-hmm. neoliberal outlook that Shul is kind of trying to uh, excavate here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, it, just one additional thing about that. The uh, since we recorded that episode, Braxton Soderman's book Against Flow came out. Mm, um, yes. And from MIT Press, I did a review of that. It's like on the internet if you just Google my name and against flow. Uh, but that book's awesome and excellent and spends about half of its length really digging into the political uh, both background of Csikszentmihalyi that we knew a little bit of but didn't have nearly as much uh, information on. Um, you know, Soderman really digs through the archive and uh, goes fine grained through Csikszentmihalyi's early publications in particular to see where this is all coming from. So if you want to learn more about this stuff, you should listen to our show. Absolutely. But then there's also now a monograph, you know, that's straight up just about these things um, that and it really gets into game design um, mm-hmm. and how game designers talk about flow, too. So great book. Uh, highly, highly recommended. Um, really, really useful for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here, uh, uh, Shul wants to kind of, uh, bring up the issue of flow, but then also complicate it because it is so bound up in this very, uh, individualist notion of, of, uh, how people work. Um, and one of the things that she points out is that gamblers, uh, in particular, uh, and this is a quote from 171. Quote, gamblers most readily enter the zone at the point where their own actions become indistinguishable from the functioning of the machine. So again, this this feeling of having been zippered into uh, the the actions of the machine in the same way that, you know, Csikszentmihalyi uh, is talking like when he gives his examples of like working on an assembly line mm-hmm. about how you can like make a little game where the thing comes in front of you and you do your thing and then you wait for the next thing to come and you do your thing and you try to see how many times you can do that in an hour. Um, uh, really like morphing yourself into the shape that the the system that you're interacting with wants from you. And what Shul does uh, kind of flipping this around is saying like, this is this is in fact what the gamblers want when they enter the zone. They want that feeling of having uh, uh, entered into this kind of immediate uh, responsive relationship with the machine apparatus. Uh, that seems to be kind of what the zone is. Uh, and she grounds this into in some like psychoanalysis, uh, D.W. Winnicott's theory about like the children sort of pre what Lacan would call the, the Oedipal complex, right? The point at which allegedly a child um, uh, sees the world as kind of uh, uh, all continuous, right? There's no individuation in the world for the small child. And so everything in the world, i.e. the mother, uh, exists to like meet the child's needs. And then like your your earliest experience of psychic trauma comes about when you realize that your mother is an independent entity and cannot always meet every single need that you have. Um, and... Uh, there's this other kind of weird implication then from the, from moving on from there, right? Uh, that, uh, this outlook of like seeing the world as sort of continuous with yourself, um, uh, one, if it were to happen kind of on its own and sort of two, like if it is a thing that is happening as a result of the, the machine zone, um, means that gamblers are retreating into uh, quote functional autism. Yeah, this uh, whole discussion is is absolutely bizarre. Um, yeah, and and Shul is quoting from a, a psychological researchers who are doing this. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not as if she's like inventing this out of thin air, but basically looking at um, 
the the ways that the documented ways that uh, autistic people are interacting with the world, and then looking at the ways that people in gambling situations are interacting with the world, and then saying, "Hey, this produces something that looks like autism." Mm-hmm. And I, I just, uh, I would not do do that. It's not a comparison uh, I would make. No, it's not, and it just like doesn't. Um, I don't know what the goal here is. I guess is what I'm saying. I, I don't. Uh, that seems like. A, but if if uh, if the machine zone is functionally for for the people who are really all about it, if it is producing pure bodily dissociation, mm-hmm. right? Because because that is what you know. At the end of the chapter, we're talking about this person Lola who is like vomiting and urinating on herself because she is truly unattached from her body because mm-hmm. she's pressing the button so quickly. Um, and then people get super annoyed, right, with any kind of imposition. This is where the, the autism discussion comes in, is that on the flip side, anything that breaks that, you know, any kind of social interaction or noise or light or anything like that, then that makes the, the gamblers extremely irritable in the way that I, I think children are being talked about here. Uh, children with autism uh, are having a, uh, um, uh, like, social interactions that they often find annoying or difficult Mm -hmm. or they're not quite sure what the rules of are and like i get the connection that's made here but i just i I feel like it's pretty flimsy Mm -hmm. Um, and and relies on a a different understanding of autism than i think we have today Mm -hmm. very early 2000s feel very much um one thing that i think is interesting about this uh i think this is a designer uh that uh, uh shul is quoting is talking about how um you know the 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 goal here in the same way that like uh it seems that in the zone or if to get to the zone you have to shut out all kind of like social interaction or minimize it at least uh you want to build a machine that does not uh too closely seem to mirror the uh situation of a social interaction of someone kind of interrupting your play to make you do something or respond to something right like we not Mm -hmm. we need to keep the play going which uh, ties in with what you said about even the process of like getting more credits onto your into your account, right, gets uh, gamified in order to sort of extend this. Um, uh, he says that, you know, we what we want to do is build machines <clears throat> that are acting on user preference without the user knowing. And he calls this process auto magic, right? Things need mm-hmm. should be happening auto magically. And uh, that just jumped out at me because that is the precise terminology that Brenda Laurel used in computers as theater uh back in in our episode on that uh where she was talking about how you know the ideal kind of computer system is one that is uh that in this uh, all my hobby horses cameron it clearly like uh uh tied into uh my obsession with like enchantment and disenchantment uh, of a machine that does a thing. And then you can sort of like willfully obfuscate the fact that it's machine logic doing it. And you can like have some sort of numinous experience with it. Right. The, the auto magic of it. Yeah. It really is striking how much basically anywhere in any form of entertainment, even beyond entertainment, you know, here in the gaming industry, that that's what people are chasing. Like mm-hmm. they, they're, they're so, and this is part of the, you know, um, uh, the, uh, the discussion around oh, uh, Janet Murray uh, in Hamlet on the Holodeck, right? You know the mm-hmm. the kind of uh, cyberbard, right? Mm-hmm. It's this like complete disillusion of the machine, uh, in order to embrace the like, I don't know, plenitude of aesthetic experience, and it's mm-hmm. just like I don't know, I that's not a thing I care about. 
Like, I don't mind touching the machine. They, and this is also like, you know, the uh, naturalistic design folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and that stuff is still, you know, the best interface is no inter- interface, the Golden Krishna stuff. Like, I, the interfaces are not a problem for me. They're not an issue. I, the, that's not a thing that I'm not, ch- I'm not chasing, like not being able to see the rivets. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in fact, I like to see the rivets. Uh, I think that's important. <laughs> I think it's cool to know how things are made. I, it is, I've never thought about it this way, but after teaching just straight up marks on commodities, two semesters in a row, it's chasing the commodity property as like the horizon of good design mm-hmm. of never knowing where something came from and obfuscating its origins in order to create the dancing table in front of you. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I, one, I don't care about it. Like, that's not a thing that's important to me. And two, that might be bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that might be bad for workers. That might be bad for anyone who makes anything. Uh, that might be bad for learning how things are made. Um, I, you know, I don't know. That might be bad for human beings across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, that, that's my journey on this podcast is determining what I think is bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, uh, the gambling industry might be bad. Yeah. And I think uh, obfuscating the origins of things might be bad. Mm hmm. Uh, but that's really like what this uh, uh, chapter is about, is about the like the idea that what the what the player wants is uh, a sort of like perfectly seamless experience. And what are the ways in which uh, like, well, what does that experience look like? And then what are the ways that uh, machine design and sort of like casino practice uh, can facilitate that? Um, one interesting thing, this is from a, a gambler who is talking about, um, uh, I think her experiences with like video poker machines deal, draw this 178 quote deal, draw bet max deal, draw bet max. I would just watch the credit meter go up and down. If I were dealt a winner and it would go up, I'd think how many times can I press this before all my money gets consumed? And this jumped out at me because uh, this is an experience that I had when I was a kid playing with like uh, graphing calculators. <laughs> just just minusing things. Ooh, yeah, right. Like, I don't yeah. know. Like, I'm not going to say that like this is a universal experience because I don't know. But this is like when I first got my hands on like a really fancy calculator in like middle school, I was like, what the hell? And it was all about <laughs> just like putting the button, like hitting the buttons and seeing like if I could set up like a function or something. And if I could just like repeatedly hit the button and how high could I get the number or if I did something else, like you and I start dividing things out, like how could I make the number smaller? Um, it's it's that sort of experience, right? Of like having the machine and just like seeing like what, like what can I do, right? And in the case of the, the slot machine, I think there's like a further bound put on it and that there is like a, you know, money that it's extracting from you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like a very similar sort of like impetus. Well, it's also got this kind of vibe of like, I'm the one who makes the Lego racers go. Yeah. Right. Of like, I'm, I, I'm doing something mm-hmm. like this is, I, I'm performing actions um, and part of that, this is what I wanted to talk about earlier. It's not about the, it's not about the monkeys. This is about, uh, how <laughs> certain gamblers, when they hit a certain speed on video poker machines, that the machine just stops animating anything because mm-hmm. like nor- normally it would like show like a digital hand, like giving you your cards. But if you're playing too quickly, it automatically adjusts itself to you. Uh, also known as dynamic difficulty adjustment dda mm-hmm. uh, in the video game industry which actually soderman talks about quite a bit in, uh, in his book but uh the uh they just want to skip the cutscenes, right the, yep. they hate all these other pieces they just want the gameplay 
They they do not care for anything around it. And I, I thought that was an interesting kind of alignment that they want to get back to the individualist action, even if that individualist action is leading toward the exact same outcome as anything else, which is an empty bank account mm-hmm. or your daily limit. Well, we mentioned it twice. We do have to explain for the listener, the monkeys. Um, so just very I refuse. Brief, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it. I'll handle this one. Okay, just very okay. briefly. Uh, uh, one of in this, re, uh, it does tie into stuff we've talked about. So one of the things that gets brought up is a machine that is designed and it has some sort of like jungle or like tropical island theme. Um, and so there's like a on the screen. Uh, where you have, and I think it is a slot machine. So you have the screen where you have the slots and there's kind of like a, a border around it that has some trees and there are animated monkeys who are hanging out in the trees and they are program. It's, it's programmed such that like, if you get a win, the monkeys like, you know, cheer and clap for you. Um, but if you're like just playing and not winning, the monkeys just hang out in the trees and like are looking either like down at the slots or like turn and look out of the screen at the person. At, like, it looks like they're looking at the person at the slot machine. And this turns out to be a disastrous idea because people hate it. They hate these little monkeys, like watching them and looking at them because they're creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I hate him too. <laughs> but yeah, that's that, and that's like a disastrous. And so they had to figure out other ways to like make the monkeys cool. They didn't go back. They didn't go back to the drawing board and say we got to get rid of these monkeys. They said we have to like make it. You can like poke the monkeys and make them giggle and stuff. Mm-hmm. They made the monkeys more interactable. Yep. You know, this is like when, uh, whatever, when Ratchet and Clank came out and there are all these gamers being like, you can just walk through the, the ground. Yeah, there's, there's, there's plants and you can just walk through them. They don't animate. Cheap, bad game. Uh-huh. Same, same effect of residence here, right? The monkeys yeah. just stare at me. I can't tickle the monkeys. <laughs> Look, if you're a game designer and you listen to this for, um, game design tips, you know, what, what does game design or what the game studies have for you as a game designer? Number one, let them tickle the monkeys. <laughs> oh, that's going to be the, the the new Twitter account is can I tickle the monkey? <laughs> and it's like Metal Gear Solid 1. No. <laughs> you no, cannot there, tickle the no monkey, monkey in Metal Gear Solid 1. <laughs> you cannot tickle the monkey there. Uh, Tempest. You cannot <laughs> tickle the monkey in Tempest. Super Monkey Ball. Amazingly, no, you cannot tickle the monkey in Super Monkey Ball. I don't think you can tickle the monkey, yeah. (laughs) Weirdly enough. I bet there's very few games where... Okay, fine. Anyway, all right. Part three, addiction. Uh, I think we'll probably move through the last two sections of this uh, pretty quickly because they read pretty quickly and they are... There's a heavy amount of repeated information to give you context for what's going on in these sections. And also, a lot of the word count is just people talking about their absolute immiseration as addicts. Mm-hmm. Which is again like very uh, powerful to read, but I'm not going to recount the majority of these stories. Although there is one I do want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, chapter seven uh, gambled away, liquidating life. Um, this uh, is basically about how it, it touches on what we said at the very beginning uh, with regard to the introduction uh, that there's like a mirror function that happens between uh, like the situation of the person sitting at the gambling machine, hitting the button over and over and over again. And uh, the, the subject position that we are all put into as subject under neoliberal capitalism, where 
uh, the, you know, outside of the game, we are supposed to be like constantly in charge of ourselves, constantly monitoring ourselves, our own health, making decisions about what is good for us and what is bad for us, being perfectly informed, making purchases and making the best possible purchases we possibly could, uh, filling out all like, you know, balancing our checkbooks, making sure that the, the money is going to come in right, um, so on and so forth. Uh, it is this sort of like experience of, of like, you know, widespread chance or pure contingency and all of these kind of, uh, you know, colluding factors uh, that gets funneled down to uh, I am sitting at a machine. I have this like my number. The number in my corner is this much. If I hit this button, that number goes down a certain amount. And if these things come up in just the right way, I might actually end up with more money than I started. But that's not really the issue, right? I, I that might not be what I want because it might just be that what I want as a gambler is knowing that I am burning through this, this uh, pile of money in small increments and just watching how that math kind of uh, uh, figures out in, in reality. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's just, uh, it, it the uh, incredible industry term for this is play to extinction. Whew. Playing to, to zeroing out. Um, do you want to know more about playing to extinction? Check out our show too much future, uh, where we, we play through the fallout games and you can check out our latest series on, uh, new Vegas, um, where I told the story of a, a lady named lucky Nell and she has, well, I don't know. I, I had a lot of lucky Nell thoughts while reading this entire book. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, Vegas, uh, weighs heavily on, on lucky Nell. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, basically the way that Shul characterizes this experience that you're talking about is that it is a, that gambling itself, sitting with the machine, becomes a kind of respite from neoliberal logics. Mm -hmm. That, like, you can say this on 194, the immersive zone of machine play, by contrast, offers a reprieve from the nebulous and risky calculative matrix of social interaction, shielding the player from the monitoring gaze of others and relieving her or the player of the need to monitor them in return. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, there's this uh, way that, that gambling becomes a way of absolutely regaining autonomy in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, we talked about in the intro of kind of minimizing contingency, you know, despite it being a game of chance, you kind of know what you're in for in a very predictable and rules-based way. Um, and the, you know, it, it seems like many of these people who Shoal is talking about who are gambling addicts conceive of it in exactly that way. That is a way of kind of taking a big, difficult world that we live in and then really, uh, limiting the amount of responsibilities and things you have to think about. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a way of kind of shutting things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, uh, really, you know, ties into i don't know if you have more to say here but like the next chapter is the one that's called overdrive chasing loss playing to extinction which is about yep. exactly what you just said it's got a little bit more um theoretical scaffolding here where we go back uh not to winnicott this time but to freud and sort of freud's idea of the fort Daw game um which i feel like i have to have explained at least three or four times prior to this point on this show uh but just to review uh Freud sees like his grandson throwing away like a like stick or a hoop or something. I don't know. Whatever babies play with. Yeah, the spindle. It's a spindle. 
in the 19th <laughs> this, this is what did, it's, it's the the like 19th century equivalent of giving the child the car keys yeah it really is <laughs> um uh, he's like throwing away a spindle and then like pulling it back and he's saying you know fort da like there and gone or rather he actually observes what it, this is a, a conflation freud observes two games uh, and then mm-hmm. conflates them in his own theory. But his idea is this. Uh, again, the child is upset because he has realized that his mother is not there to meet his every need automatically. Uh, and so he tries to master the traumatic loss of the providing mother uh, by transposing these feelings onto the spindle, which he can control and he makes go away and come back kind of as he sees fit. Um, so uh, we have and uh shul sort of points out that like this i think is is in some ways kind of like uh in the background radiation uh maybe of how we might think about uh people with gambling problems um like they're pursuing a sense of control that they don't have in real life and in fact that's what we've just talked about um but then she talks about this really fascinating uh uh case study this woman who like went to med school like sharon sharon this is the wildest story in this entire book Right. Like worked really hard all through school, like appears to have come from like a, you know, a pretty good, stable family like and her her like goal was to was her goal was perfection. Right. She wanted to be the person who got straight A's. She wanted to go to med school and become a doctor. Um, She was like tracking her own health assiduously. She was like running and exercising. She had all of these regimens that she was doing. Uh, And then in her last like couple of years of med school, um. It's, it's not quite, I think, clear what happened, but she realized uh, at a certain point she was just like, I like I am uh, running against a clock. Right. Like I cannot, in fact, maintain like perfect health forever mm-hmm. um, and I'm getting tired of things. And so she made a decision like in her last year of med school. She's like, when I'm done, I'm blowing it all up. Uh, so she leaves med school like she finishes her residency and drives from her residency to Vegas, still in her scrubs. And uh, proceeds to gamble away all of her savings in Vegas. Yeah, she obliterates her life on purpose, methodically, Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. by point. She takes the U-Haul back early so she can get more money uh, by returning it early so she could gamble more of her money away. Mm -hmm. And what's really fascinating, this is my least favorite chapter, period. I think that this chapter should probably have been cut from the manuscript, just to Mm -hmm. be totally honest. I think that that positioning this and then also positions another long self-written story by a woman who uh, underwent a huge amount of abuse, just mm-hmm. period, uh, in a lot of different ways, a lot of very affecting ways. And then now has kind of, you know, or, or has kind of uh, uh, hit a point of gambling addiction, but really understands her gambling addiction through the, the you know, lens of all this other stuff that happened to her. And, and so these two narratives dominate this chapter. I think that I, I this this is the most New York Timesy kind of section to me, mm-hmm. um, or you know, or or nonfiction bestsellery to me because it has this almost like uh, bourgeois highbrow or like middlebrow even effect to it, where it's like, hey, you know about Freud, you know mm-hmm. about the Fort Dog game. Mm-hmm. Here's some just almost pornographically awful things that happen to human beings. That we we were going to revel in the nightmare that that uh, happened to them. Freud explains this stuff, and like I, for a book that is so good across the board about providing so many great examples, I mean this 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 is like the ideal academic book. I cannot stress that enough. 
this to me feels like a just like a you know middle of the road New York Times bestseller that's trying to um, I don't know appeal to you on the ground of like the Freud you read in college and mm-hmm. I, I it is just woefully to me the explanatory apparatus here is woefully inadequate to what happened to these two people mm-hmm. like Sharon I'm I'm not any kind of medical professional in any kind of way I can't make any diagnosis of a person and I wouldn't but. Sharon has some sort of compulsory thing going on mm-hmm. around control. Yes. And that that is obviously being applied to gambling as well. And she's talking about it the whole time. And and any other kind of like explanation other than like Freud and the gambling is obviated here. We just like skip on by it. Mm-hmm. And that seems really strange to me. And then this narrative of the the woman of of who experiences all of these um kind of traumas that ends up being presented and then read almost like literarily it's like literary analysis analysis mm-hmm. happens of it of like the metaphors she's using and all these different things and it's like i don't think that's sufficient for talking about what happened to her either like mm-hmm. there's other stuff going on we have to talk about like class we have to talk about like capability and ability right like Sharon is someone who went to medical school and then systematically obliterated her life. There are other things going on here other than gambling addiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and similar for this other person, too, who, like, hitchhikes across the country in the middle of her narrative. She's like, you know, uh, she understands that she is purposefully harming herself by being around abusive men, and she mm-hmm. recognizes she's doing it. Like, I don't know. It's just, I, I think that this book would be this chapter left me with massive question marks about what it's even doing in the book. I don't know what it explains other than, yeah, gambling addiction can get really bad. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I didn't need to sit with this to do it. I mean, again, I, like I said earlier in the the episode, I think these stories are really powerful. And I think that the openness with which these people shared them is really admirable, but I, I don't know if what is done with them here justifies the amount of leering detail that we spend on it. I bet that these play really well in like a conference presentation, but I I don't know. It, they make me they make me feel weird about what we do as academics. I think I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean that's that's that part. Then we move into part four, which is adjustment. Um, do you want to just read my summaries that I wrote of these chapters? Yeah, I think you should. You you at some point just started writing summaries. Yeah, <laughs> like this is uh, the Homestuck show. Yeah. And I mean, I don't do this because uh, it's not like that. That's information is not important enough to do a point by point. But uh, with this show specifically, uh, I try to do point by point notes for information that I think is going to be maybe more interesting and applicable to people who are listening for game studies reasons. Right. People mm-hmm. who are designers or, or players. Um, and so these these the back half of this book is kind of uh, more of a an ethnography of like gambling addicts and kind of the situation that they exist in. Mm hmm. So uh, chapter nine, balancing acts, the double bind of therapeutics. In this chapter, we learn that Vegas has the best resources for supporting recovering gambling addicts, which also means uh, that all recovering gambling addicts are surrounded at all times by their temptation, something that's not in the summary that I need to note here in case you don't know it. In Vegas, there are slot machines in the grocery store. There are slot machines in the CVS. There is video poker at, like, you know, your corner 7-Eleven. So... 
This is your situation as a gambling addict in Vegas. Sometimes people in therapy become compulsive about their therapeutics, uh, this seeming to replace or compensate for or align with in some other way their compulsion to gamble. Shul notes that the emergence of a pharmaceutical self who manages, manages one's own health coincides with the neoliberal doctrine of self-governance and self-failure described above. Yeah, this whole, this whole part, part four, is about like what's going on right now. And like how knowing all this information, what's the industry doing? And so uh, nine, as you're pointing out, is all about like, hey, there are people who are gambling addicts. That's a problem. We got to like do something about that. And really ends up kind of finger pointing at uh, the emergence of like an industry that's just there to monetize those people. Mm -hmm. A Uh, company called Trimeridian. Yeah, Trimeridian. Trimeridian, the way they get you involved is they give you a worksheet that basically says like, how much money do you spend a year gambling? And it's like the example, the person she talks to, it was like, oh, it's like $20,000 a year. That's a lot of money. Um, well, guess what? If you come to our meetings, it only costs you $1,000 per you know per meeting for 12 meetings. That's only $12,000. If you do some cost benefit analysis, you will know that spending money in our therapy program is mm-hmm. much more you know, uh, cost effective than gambling all the time. Mm-hmm. So then therefore you should come check us out, which is like, I guess, rhetorically very compelling, but also kind of seems, uh, to suggest maybe a parasitic relationship there. Mm-hmm. Oh, another thing that this reminds me of that I didn't, uh, mention earlier. One of the things that comes up uh, with those like reward cards, the lo- uh, loyalty cards at the casinos, uh, there are some people where like, that's how they live. Because if you do so many games, uh, you know, so many spins, you can get a free stay for a couple of days or you get mm-hmm. free meals. There are people who like appear to like support themselves and they're like living by getting free stays at. Uh, and I don't mean like they're not like living, you know, luxuriously by any means, uh, but like there are multiple points where she's interviewing people in this book who are staying in their hotels that they've gotten through their loyalty programs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um which is very much like, you know, the, all of these uh, in, in the same way that like uh, the therapeutics become enmeshed here with like the eco- the gambling ecology of Vegas. Um, we see that like just the, the basic way that you live your life can become uh, enmeshed as well. Mm-hmm. Chapter 10, fix upon fix recipes for regulating risk. Gambling companies try to shirk regulation by insisting that problem gambling is innate to particular people. Much of the existing regulation we have is written according to this precept. A Harvard academic who researched gambling has basically become a paid consultant for the gambling industry. There are various changes that could be made to machines that would stop or place a hard limit on play, but designers usually concern troll about how this might somehow have quote-unquote worse unintended consequences, such as people getting angry on the casino floor and so on also since they're addicts they're going to try to gamble anyway so we might as well make the machines that let them do it so instead they design machines that let people set their own uh, bet and like play limits which actually leads to an 80 percent increase in play time and 132 percent increase in wagering here again the machine models the system scaffolding self-regulation for further buy-in there is also a weird risk assessment tool that calculates the likelihood of problem gambling for individuals within a casino. Uh, It may be good, but it's notably an add-on to the existing system, not a reimagining of that system to be foundationally less less exploitative. Yep. That's what's going on in the chapter. There's a lot of interesting systems of, like, modes of intervention. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the one at the end is, like, someone literally comes up and it's like, hey, 
do you think you might have a gambling problem? Yeah. <laughs> like it's that level of direct intervention. Um, and it's, and what's very interesting about the whole thing I thought is that casino operators are like way into it. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, come, come and figure it out. Like, yeah, ga- <laughs> wait, I think gambling addiction is a problem. Come figure it out. And then and it produces systems that just I'll let them do exploit more. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I love what she does with the Schaefer guy, that Harvard academic. Yeah. Because <laughs> Schaefer is the person who initially says uh, video poker is the crack cocaine of gambling, mm-hmm. which is like it is so uh, difficult to pull yourself away from. It's always that kind of one more hand feeling that, you know, I, people get stuck to it. So he's like a hard line critic. And then in the 90s, there's a commission that is made to figure out what's going on with gambling and gambling addiction. And he gets approached by them and then begins hosting all these talks about how it's actually just individual pathology. The 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 three or four pages she dedicates to him are some of the most brutal disassembling of a human being I have seen in an academic book. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> really something. <laughs> because it's like, here's what you said before. And it's so academically written, right? So it's like very polite. She never says what I just said, right? It's never like, hey, you have become a paid corporate consultant. It's all this like, hey, here's what this person wrote beforehand. This commission came and approached them. Here's what they started doing afterward. Here's a long-form analysis of what this person said during a panel discussion they were hosting. Can, can I where read everyone, this? Yeah, please do. Because <laughs> people excerpted. are raising their hand. Yeah, they're raising their hand. Is that the part you're talking about? Yes. Yes, please read that. So this is uh, this is actually from the conclusion. Um, oh, okay. Got called it. called raising the stakes. Uh, he is discussed in the part that we just uh, said, but like he, this uh, is how the the conclusion begins. So uh, Shul uh, is at like one of these industry events where Schaefer is, or it's like sort of weird. It's like between industry and like study of kind of stuff, which is the point that she wants to make. Right? Is that he started out as a study of, and then he kind of uh, became really friendly with the industry. Um, his funding seems to have gotten very tied up in. And what casinos were willing to fund um so uh he's at the, so she is at uh one of these events where he is giving a talk uh and they have uh like gone through a tour of the casino and he's kind of uh describing it um uh and he says like this is her kind of indirectly summarizing what he says if the industry is making that much money doesn't it make sense that they'd want to protect it and that they'd have little incentive to encourage anything that could change that oh wait no 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 this is like people in the audience trying to say mm-hmm. uh, uh like push back on sort of his idea that the, the the industry can regulate itself um by way of answer schaefer asked the audience quote isn't it possible to take in a huge amount of money and reduce gambling related harms <laughs> dispensing with the clicker technology because he was giving a talk about how clicker technology can be used to like train people not to gamble or something i don't know um the clicker technology to pursue this unscripted line of questioning he had people raise their hands in the air uh quote how many believe it is possible uh to take in large amounts of money and reduce gambling related harms at the same time another audience member took the microphone howard his name is howard schaefer howard it's not just about making a profit it's about maximizing profit and that's where the problems come in Schaefer asked, is there a limit? What's the limit? Someone in the back of the hall called out an answer. In the industry, there is no limit. 
a woman in the front row stood and pointed out that revenue was exploding and had grown to three times what it was only recently. I don't disagree, Schaefer responded, but it's not a criticism you're making because Disney does it too. Still standing, the woman countered, at Disney you have limits on the rides. Although many had raised their hands to speak, Schaefer stopped the conversation and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> this is like uh the only other kind of comparable uh, across chapter 10 and this conclusion the only other comparable thing i can think of in an academic book that made me be like oh shit is when like this person is being just <laughs> you know disassembled <laughs> at, at, you know as a thinker is when um in uh frank wilderson's most recent book there's a chapter about how he uh, he does a reading of a particular film in an, in front of an audience, I think in Berlin, and then uh, everyone hates the reading. They think he's like wrong, and they're like really invested in defending this filmmaker, even though you know Wilderson has given this talk about the kind of racial and particularly anti-black implications of the, of this presumably liberatory text or you know film. And so all these people start like grilling him on it. And they're like, it's unfair. You're ignoring the filmmaker, all this kind of stuff. And in the chapter, he names every single person <laughs> who, who like said one of these questions to him. And then he like responds to all of their points, you know, kind of replicating the, the situation. And uh, this felt very similar to me to that of like, I was here and I need to make sure this is this is marked in time forever that mm -hmm. these people did this. <laughs> the, the Schaefer guy made this decision here. Um, yeah. Uh, just compare a thing to Disney and then it's okay. Then mm -hmm. we just have to like throw up our hands and, and ignore any political implications or anything. Um, but yeah, the conclusion broadly, I don't think we really have to go over it. The conclusion is, hey, this is what we learned. And also... Uh, here's maybe what we could think about doing, and there's a lot of discussion about different modes of potential regulation and then transformation in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Shul has entered into, I guess, while this book was being made and kind of in, in the time after this, uh, this is on her CV when I was looking at it, uh, quite a lot of advisory roles for mm -hmm. various gambling commissions. Um, and this seems to be kind of like, hey, if you're the person who who wants to know what's up with gambling and like what the state of play is in 2012 around what could be done. This is, you know, the executive summary kind of, of the whole book. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, great, great conclusion. Really good. Um, uh, you know, example of how to do that for a big complicated book. Mm -hmm. She points out that, uh, the gambling industry wants to tap new markets uh, forever and always, um, they would love to engineer various situations in which gambling can be slipped into everyday life uh, in more and more ways. Um, they would love and in fact already are adding video game like elements to their machines in order to attract the quote unquote youth market. One of these sounds like uh, uh, doing basically like battle royale slot machines where it's mm -hmm. like 50 people playing uh, on these slot machines at one time uh, and like seeing who wins the most in, in a, a certain span or something. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a, a game company that has, I, I got interested in this because uh, their description of what they call adaptive gaming uh, just sounds like basically every mobile game that could ever exist. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, it's their, their new and, and cool patented system 
Adaptive Gaming that offers, quote, a game experience, this is their marketing copy, a game experience similar to those that players have become accustomed to with the internet, e-commerce, and console-based video gaming. Um, and then Shul describes... The game and the games involve players in a developing epic that allows them to progressively unlock new features as they play, move up and rank, save their progress and resume play at a later time, even at a different casino and in a different state. Um, which, yeah, like that's that's kind of like a that's a gotcha, right? That's like a mobile game. Um, although what was very sort of fascinating is I, I looked up this company cause I wanted to see like, what are they making and how close is it to these mobile mm -hmm. games? Mm -hmm. They're just, they're, they're just like, they're, they're really complex slot machines. Um, mm -hmm. and I couldn't get any gameplay footage of what these specific types of games are. Uh, but one thing I did learn is that, uh, the variability for you to save your game, uh, is behind a paywall amazing right <laughs> truly amazing like all this stuff about like saving the game and like leveling up and like taking like you know being able to like log into the same account at another casino to continue to play the game like that's paywalled you have to play the game a certain amount before and before you can even do that wow yeah what a what a time to be alive mm-hmm I thought you were going to be like, and they made Genshin Impact. <laughs> I yeah, that was my thought when I read that description. I was like, oh, this sounds like Genshin Impact. Uh, apparently, they've got like, like I don't know if these are actual licensing deals. Again, I was reading like some weird like uh, trade ind industry website, and they were talking about how they uh, they had they were making like a Lord of the Rings game and and mm. some other stuff. Um, all all of this like licensed stuff, right? A lot of like big IPs. Um, but once more, I. I could not find any footage of these specific games being run. And so I don't really know what's going on with them. Still, you know, that description sounds an awful lot like Genshin Impact. <laughs> mm hmm. It does. I think, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm radicalized against loot boxes now. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it worked. I, I know. Hard. <sighs> no. Yep. there's uh, there. I just I think that the way that you I mean, look. I've always been a naive determinist when it comes to technology. Mm -hmm. I think machines do things to people more than people do things to machines, just in a general sense. And uh, yeah, I just like, look, these things are designed to extract resources from you from top to bottom. And there is definite true artistry in engineering and beauty in the creation of the thing. Uh, I don't know why anytime this comes up, this is like the immediate bludgeon that gets used. Like, well, what about the people who make it? They're great at their job, is what yeah. I would say. They're excellent. Shout out to you. Yeah. But the thing that you're really good at is extracting wealth from other people. Yeah. Um, and particularly people who don't have access to very much wealth. I mean, right. it, it seems to them, for the most part, the gambling industry really targets the, the marginalized in a big mm -hmm. way. Um, and makes most of their see, profits from people who are problem gamblers. <laughs> Yes, 90% uh, of the profits come from 10% of the gamblers, mm -hmm. uh, which we saw happen in mobile games too, right? It's it's the whale phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But I will say, I did say, you know, the most marginalized and something that hasn't come up yet, but um, uh, Shul doesn't control for uh, race, uh, doesn't control, really, it doesn't seem for class background, um, you know, uh, or, or gender, really. Uh, I mean, we see 
predominantly women showing up here. We see predominantly people who seem like they're like right at the cusp of middle class, I would say, or mm-hmm. retirees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know of anyone. Uh, uh, one of the Sharon, I think was her name, gets marked out as Italian American. But I don't think mm-hmm. that very many other people get any kind of like ethnic. Um, totally, totally beside the point. Uh, there's one woman who gets talked about. This was a weird detail that I really wanted to know more about, and it never comes up again. There's a woman who's t- talked to early on who uh, she men- it's mentioned that she is not allowed to play on certain machines. Yes, machines made by a certain company. That yes. never got explained. I really also yeah. wanted to know about that. Yeah, and so she has to like go to other places to play the machines. And I'm like, wait a minute, why can't she play on the other machines? Is this her choice? Did the company like puts out some sort of restraint? order against her like what's going on I, well uh, it could be because you're tracked all the time right so it could be that they just like reject her thing uh maybe that's it okay yeah like i was just I like know. wait a minute what does that mean how how does a company bar you from its machines i don't know yeah i was very interested in that too if you've got an answer for this if you're a part of the uh, gaming industry or uh have any knowledge on that how how would one be barred from a machine please only answer if you actually know yeah <laughs> uh uh you can let us know at range touch do we know what we're uh, doing for next time, Michael, unless you have anything else to talk about or say about this book? No, I think I'm about done, and uh, we do not know what we're talking about. We can decide live on air, as we sometimes do, um, or well, we can I, talk about that later. Well, we've talked about it a little bit. I, I don't remember if it was on air or off air, but uh, there's another book that I've purchased recently. I actually purchased it before I purchased the Shul book uh, by Rebecca Cassidy, who is a researcher in the U.K. called Vicious Games, Capitalism and Gambling. Oh, Okay. That that came out a few uh, came out in twenty twenty came out very recently. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that might be a cool way, right? Because like no, no doubt, straight up, the Shul book is a classic mm-hmm. of like even though it's not directly in game studies. I think that uh, if you are in game studies, this is required reading. There there is so much overlap here between these industries and how they talk about what the what they are producing, what their goals are. It is yeah. Yeah, I just think this is like you're doing yourself a disservice. Maybe listen to the podcast episodes enough. You can find out what you you know what chapters you're interested in specifically. But like, if if I were teaching a graduate class or I were a graduate student who was looking to put together my comprehensive exam list, if I could go back in time and put together a comprehensive exam list, I, this book would be right at the top of it, um, out of out of, out of alphabetical order, uh, of course. But uh, the uh, yeah, this is just like in, in the firmament for me. You can't, I don't think you can like really talk about what's going on in contemporary games and like the way that they think players without thinking, uh, you know, about the ways that that is uh, in relationship to this totally other industry that is still the gaming industry. But Vicious Games 2020, ca- uh, Vicious Games Capitalism and Gambling by Rebecca Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what do you think? What, what do you think about two gambling books, one of which is canonical and one of which is more recent? Uh, well, that's kind of the mandate of the show, isn't it? That was like kind of what we started out with. It's like, here's a yeah. thing that's like really well known. And here's a, here's a newer thing. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to look at the page numbers. 
It's not nearly as long. I have a physical okay. copy, and it's about half the length. Okay, okay, that's good. That's not to say that like uh, long books are are bad. I actually like long books, but it was it was kind of a burn to get this one in. Uh, yes, I read this over the course because I had a very busy month. I read this over the course of about four days, yeah. and that was a pretty intense experience. <laughs> and maybe that contributed to my feeling of just absolute misery mm-hmm. um, because it was like, whoa, you know, whatever. But Rebecca Cassidy is uh, this is an interesting book, and I've had it for a while, and I flipped through it. I just haven't had a chance to sit down and read it yet, but it's from Pluto Press, so it's a little bit more geared toward uh, mm-hmm. public readership, I would say. Uh, paperback's 240 pages. Okay, uh, yeah. Notes inclusive. Uh, Rebecca Cassidy is a professor of anthropology at Goldsmiths, and oh. we we know what Goldsmiths is up to. Mm-hmm. They're big old weirdos over there in a good yeah. way. So yeah. uh, she's the co-author of Qualitative Research and Gambling, Exploring the Production and Consumption of Risk. So... You know, I, I I get the feeling looking at this book that it's a you know a uh, political a little bit maybe more polemical book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, straight up mm-hmm. capitalism's in the title. You know, mm-hmm. uh, got a great cover too if you want to check that out. But all right, well let's do that for next month. Our book for February will be Vicious Games: Capitalism and Gambling by Rebecca Cassidy. <sighs> That's it, Michael. You're going to take us out. <sighs> Until next time, folks. The social is predicated on its exclusions. Uh, can I can I make a pitch here for uh, an alter an alt ending? Okay, sure. Um. Uh. Tune in next time. Uh, to, for game study study buddies, where reason just skippity hops out the door. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say <laughs> where we tickle the monkey. Um, <laughs> you can tickle uh, the monkey. All right, we'll be back in a month. <laughs>